Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Action Radio. This is Greg Penglis coming to you from the historic district of downtown Milton on the banks of the beautiful Blackwater River. And now let's get into Action Radio. Hey there, sports fans. <laughs> it's, uh, it's showtime again. Here we are. Yeah, it's, um, I'm feeling pretty laid back and mellow today because it's right before Christmas. Uh, I haven't decided on doing a show tomorrow. I may. I may simply because I have so much news um, that uh, we really do. Uh, news is not the primary focus here. The primary focus is, uh, of this show is what happened yesterday. Yesterday was unbelievable. We had Lloyd Brunson, uh, who has the case before the Supreme Court with his entire family. He was here for two hours. If you didn't hear the show yesterday, I highly, highly recommend that you uh, you know check our podcast. And every show's podcast about like five minutes sometimes, but usually between five and ten minutes after the show, uh, it's available immediately. And the links are always the same. So the link, unless I change the title, in which case you have to go back and, and check it out uh, and get the just refresh, get the latest link uh, to any particular show, because title changes sometimes occur because. Uh, I, I change, you know, what I do on the show is, has no, nothing to do with what I think I'm going to do on the show. And so the title from the, the night before or the morning of can be completely different. Now, today I'm going to start off with a story uh, that is uh, uh, amazingly under, underreported, undercovered. And it, it, should, it should be, uh, you know, national news. It would be, you know, uh, if the situation were reversed. And I, and I hear this cliche all the time. Well, if we did this to the left, they'd be screaming and yelling. And, of course, my answer is, well, then why aren't you screaming and yelling? You geldings, you gelding old Republicans, you know, the conservative, uh, the supposedly conservative right. You know, I mean, the patriots are screaming, the independents are screaming, you know, we, we're, we're getting, but there aren't enough of us. <laughs> you know, there's, there's too many conservatives, not enough uh, patriots. And uh, when I say conservative, I'm talking deep state. I'm talking, um, you know, people that want to conserve things as they are. I mean, that's what conservative means. This is why I'm not a conservative. Never really have been. I mean, I say it all the time. You know, I talk about conservatives out of convention, but I'm not conservative. I, I'm a constitutional independent. I make conservatives look liberal <laughs> by comparison. Uh, so if, you, if you're a conservative and you want to conserve things as they are, then, then we, we really need to talk. But the conservatives don't go out and riot. And I don't mind, I, that's fine. I mean, I don't want you going and destroying property and things like that. That's what the left does. But I do want you in the streets with big signs. You know, I mean, you should be there. I mean, there should be a, a line of people around the D.C. Gulag jail Every single day, they should be surrounded, completely surrounded by thousands uh, of people. And uh, I don't care if you have to, if the, the, the Republican Party has to hire them, you know, give them, give them a uh, hundred bucks a day. I mean, I don't care. You know, you, you waste the money on so many stupid candidates. You might as well, I mean, you waste millions of dollars on candidates. Why don't you spend some money and uh, get some people standing around the, the D.C. Gulag, you know, put a ring around it, call it the, the, the ring of shame, <laughs> Or something like that, you know. I mean, we have ideas like that this all the time on the show. I mean, this is, that is the purpose, you know. This is where the ideas generate. This is this is where the, the legislation generates. This is where you know contacts like yesterday with uh, Lawyer uh, Brunson. You know, he's got his family's got uh, two major cases: one before the Supreme Court and one on its way. It's basically the same case. Uh, I went over it yesterday, so I'm not going to go over all the details today. You just listen to, to yesterday's show, you know, and and just think, well, gee, how do I listen to when I'm driving? It's easy. Take your, take your cell phone, you know, put us in the browser, connect your cell phone to the, the vehicle audio, for, which for Bluetooth is, is ridiculously easy. Otherwise, you just get a cord. And there we are, drive time. <laughs> it's that simple. 
you know, so there's, there's many things you can do. I mean, one thing I've never done, maybe I should do this right now. This is our anniversary time. So uh, December 24th, Christmas Eve of 2018 is when I started the show. I did my first episode, not wanting to wait till January 1st. You know, I was bored. So why don't I just start today? So it was really spontaneous, like, like virtually everything else on the show. So our anniversary of, uh, of our show is Saturday. Saturday is December 24th, and I'm not going to broadcast on Saturday. I may not even broadcast tomorrow, but probably will. I mean, you know, I just I, – I, I like doing this. It's really fun. You should try it. It's, it's quite addictive once you get going. Anyway, so that we've, we've been four years at Blog Talk, so I'm going to start the fifth season. Um, you know, that would be December 26th. And again, the, the week of, of Christmas, between Christmas and New Year's, I don't know what I'm going to do. Not a lot of news is happening. Everybody's on break, so I may take that time off, too. I haven't, uh, haven't quite decided. Or we'll just get philosophical. You know, we'll talk about things we don't get a chance to talk about other times. Like, I don't know, the meaning of Christmas? <laughs> you know, I, I post the, the Charlie Brown thing. Uh, I got that, uh, got that sent to me. And so uh, it's nice to have that posted, which is kind of cool. All right. So yesterday was groundbreaking. Um, we're, we'll be working with Loy and hopefully the other Brunson brothers uh, on uh, connecting with legislation. They work on the judiciary. They've got the court case. And if we can combine our legislative force, forces with their judicial forces, uh, we've got a big movement. And that's, that's entirely where this has to go. So this was, I mean, Action Radio was always designed to start a movement. It was always designed to be the peaceful revolution. It was always designed for us to write the laws that we consent to be governed by. And I meant that literally. You know, we, but we still, I mean, just so that everybody understands, we still use the Constitution. I'm not trying to go around the Constitution. I'm trying to use it. You know, I'm trying to bring it back. I'm trying to have, it, have government actually comply with it. You know, and a lot of our legislation does that. And so that's what we're trying to accomplish here. Um, let's, let's, uh, let me see. So my broadcast page, just because you know, I don't know if people read it, see it, they just kind of look at it, maybe it goes blank. First thing is share the shows and share the links to the bills. And that's at writeyourlaws.com. It's the very first item after the title, well, after the show date. The next one, connect your phone to your vehicle audio, and it's Action Radio Drive Time. That's the next part of the broadcast page. Next section is the actual show. Today, the Action Radio show schedule, a.m. Central Time for Thursday. And me as the host. First thing, Democrats go to, from slavery to segregation and keep segregation. Well, that's the title of the show. We don't want your kind here. <laughs> Let me say that again. We don't want your kind here. Uh, Democrat segregation uh, revealed. Again. You know, and the, the reason I use that statement, it kind of sticks with me because that's one of the first things I heard when I came to WBY. So here I am from, from San Francisco. And, of course, once that got out, everybody, uh, you know, listen to me talk for, for five seconds. You know, I wasn't born and raised in the South. I mean, obviously, but I love it here. Okay. Uh, but but uh, there were people who were a little skeptical of some San Franciscan coming to Milton, Florida, next to Pensacola, uh, do a morning show at WBY Radio, 1330 a.m., uh, Northwest Florida's former news and talk leader, uh, a great independent station. And uh, who's this wild California that's, that's taking over the morning show, right? So this one guy calls up. I've been on the air maybe a couple of weeks. He wasn't really listening. He, was just, he just heard the stereotype. He says, we don't want your kind here. He actually said it on the air. I wish I had that. I probably had, it's probably in a recording somewhere. Uh, but uh, yeah, he says, we, we don't want your kind here. And I said, what, are you going to ride me out of town on a rail? Are you going to tar and feather me? What, what, what have you got planned? I mean, this is fun. <laughs> you know? So uh, So you know me, I'm, <laughs> that's how I respond to this kind of stuff. And, and so he, he called, I said, well, I say, what, look, you know, uh, obviously, you know, uh, you're not thrilled with me here. I said, just give it a while. Listen, listen to the show and see what you think. And he really didn't want to engage further. And he laughed after, after his, his big insult or so he thought guy calls back six months later. He says, damn, <laughs> is you're more conservative than we are. 
<laughs> and of course, I had to laugh and I said, "Well, good. Well, I'm I'm glad. I, I told you, you know, give it a chance. Don't, don't, don't jump to conclusions right away." And uh, I don't know if he became a regular caller. I know he's a regular listener, and I've forgotten his name, and I wouldn't mention it anyway. But that was just that's just one of the cool things about uh, being on radio is that you can change, you know, the hearts and minds, and you can influence people, and you can do some pretty amazing things. Okay, let's let's talk about the Democrat Party for a minute, because this is the party of slavery. This is the party of segregation. This is the party of anti rights. This is the party of censorship. This is the party of big government, world government oppression. This is the party of tyranny, gulags, uh, and a Marxist state where they control everything. Uh, and the proof of that is they're bringing an entire population of illegal aliens to replace American patriots. That is the great replacement. So abortion for Americans, illegal aliens, come on in. You know, it's the, that is the great replacement and the great reset. So they, you know, and you can, you can tell that there's something else going on. Whenever the Democrats say that, uh, um, you know, the, somebody else is the, the great, uh, you know, replacement, the, the, the white people are afraid of brown and black people coming to the country. Oh, really? <laughs> and where do you see that? Where, where do you see white people, you know, racing to white enclaves? Where do you see white only towns? Where do you, where do you see white only companies? First of all, well, the white only towns might be legal, but the companies certainly aren't. You know, and you don't see it because white people don't care. You know, I don't go around every day thinking about how white I am. <laughs> I just don't. It doesn't. I don't even, the only time I think about stuff like that is when I, uh, um, you know, when, when, I ha- when I bring it up on the show, you know, or when we're talking about race. It's like, oh, I'm white. Yeah, I really, yeah, I keep forgetting because <laughs> yeah, I don't care. It wouldn't matter to me. Never, it never, it's never mattered to me. You know, I don't, I don't go through judging my whiteness and other people based on their whiteness. I don't even know what that is. We should do that one day. We should do the, the Mighty Whitey Show. <laughs> <laughs> Does anybody remember when I, um, back when uh, Ron DeSantis uh, flew up the illegal aliens, uh, had them actually uh, uh, a place where it flew them to the sanctuary of Martha's Vineyard, and I said Martha's Vineyard should be renamed Mighty Whitey Island. <laughs> I still think it should. I think it's a great name for it. So anybody going up to Mighty Whitey Island, you know, give us support for that. That would be kind of fun. All right. So let's, uh, oh, Yahoo News, you moved my article. Why do you keep doing that, you people? They sent me back to the main page. So something appeared in the Yahoo News, and this was December 8th, so not that long ago. Uh, it's uh, the headline, and it's a little today sunshine. Yahoo News. Yahoo, excuse me. Yahoo, exclamation point. News. Restaurant refuses service to conservative Christian group, citing staff's dignity, comfort, and safety. Where the real headline should have been leftist, Marxist, anti-Christian, anti-God group, imposes segregation again. That's what the headline should have been, but it's not. It says restaurant refuses service to conservative Christians. Like that's somehow okay. This is why I don't go by Yahoo News. You'll almost never see a story in Yahoo News because they don't report accurately. Joseph Lamour, Joseph Lamour, L-A-M-O-U-R, December 8th, 2022, in Yahoo exclamation point news, who can't even write a decent headline. <laughs> I mean, this is disgust me. So, Let's do what the, the conservatives do all the time when they want to cop out. Gee, what would happen if this was done to the left? Well, you know exactly what the headline would be. White supremacist racist restaurant refuses service to LGBT community, further oppressing uh, um, uh, something minority. What, what, what's the term they use? Um, uh, marginalized minority. That's what the headline would be. Instead of restaurant refu- refuses service to con- conservative Christian group. Now, notice that the, the, the Christian group had to be, you know, first of all, had to be characterized as Christian, then had to be characterized as conservative. I mean, you don't see liberal Christian groups running into problems. You don't see a lot of Unitarians being kicked out of restaurants, you know, or, or uh, Protestant churches with, uh, um, you know, LGBT ministers. I'm not sure about the Q part. I'm not even sure about the, the T part, because as far as I'm concerned, transgender doesn't exist. 
you can take a man and a woman or a young man or a young woman or a child, you know, male or female, and you can do surgery on them and you can give them drugs. But all you're going to end up with is a, is a mutilated uh, and drug uh, abused, you know, young man uh, or young woman or man or woman or, or, or you know, a uh, child, you know, female or male. I mean, that's all you're going to do. So does transgender exist? No, it doesn't. Because you're not changing, you're not you're not transing anything, you're not actually transferring, you're not transitioning, you're not doing anything except mutilating and uh, and drug abusing, or, or drug you know killing or sabotaging, uh, and so that's why you know LGB you know the LGB community, uh, lesbian, gay, and bisexual, uh, there's a movement within them, and it's not talked about a whole lot because it's you know on the left, right? But the uh, on the left, <laughs> excuse me, but uh, the transgender part is really not favored by the, the lesbian, gays, and bisexuals, which is interesting. Uh, and that's something that we should exploit. <laughs> you know, we should uh, we should help cause that rift, just as the left is is constantly trying to divide people into religious groups, you know, and uh, racial groups and everything else. I mean, you know, and I uh, the thing is, is, my position on on lesbian, gay, bisexual is very simple: do what you want, but don't try and change the laws. You know, when it comes to marriage, and don't try and change the language. I mean, you, you want to be together, be together. You want to say that you're married, say that you're married. I don't care. Great, go for it. Have a great life. You know, I, I can actually say some of my best friends are, are you know, lesbians and gays. And um, I lived in San Francisco for years. You know, I, I work with folks all the time, you know, that's uh, especially in the, in the tourism industry uh, that were gay and lesbian. So, so what? <laughs> They're my friends. Right. Uh, but and we actually talk politics. You'd be amazed, actually, how many how many gay folks are against gay marriage uh, in law, uh, not in practice, but in law, in, in changing the law, changing the culture, changing the history and changing everything else. Those are actually real conservatives because they want to conserve what is, you know, what marriage means. And what, uh, you know, what it means in law. And uh, there was the Mark, what's his name? The guy in uh, the Dallas talk show host, Mark something. Um, I forgot his name. Anyway, real popular. Got a great voice for radio. And uh, he was talking about this. He says in law. And that's the distinction he made in law. Marriage, you know, has to mean a man and a woman, you know, uh, getting married, sanctioned by God, licensed by the state. And again, I question the license by the state part, but it is a contract. And so it's not a right. And so that's the difference. We're talking about a contract. Anyway, I digress. Back to the article, which says, from Joseph Lamour, who doesn't know how to write a decent headline, a Virginia restaurant has found itself at the center of controversy after refusing service to a conservative Christian organization over the group's opposition to abortion rights and same-sex marriage. Well, I don't believe there is such a thing as same-sex marriage. There's same-sex partnerships, same-sex bonds, same-sex uh, unions, same-sex all kinds of things. And that's fine. You're, not, you're, you're, you're creating a new term, which is fine, but you're not destroying the term of marriage because marriage, by definition, cannot be same sex. So therefore, to say same sex marriage is actually propagandistic and wrong. Uh, abortion rights. There is no right to an abortion, you know, because rights are individual. And I don't know a bunch of uh, uh, preborn babies that are aborting themselves or claiming that right. So there's no such thing as an abortion right. OK, you don't you know, especially when it involves another person, you don't have the right to uh, uh, you know, nobody has a life and death decision over another person. You know, it's, but it's fascinating the way this is categorized. So language is everything. Language is absolutely everything. So he says abortion rights and same-sex marriage of terms I will change to their proper meaning. But the thing is, where's, where's, the, uh, where's the Civil Rights Commission? You know, where's the ACLU? You know, where, where are the, the, the conservative religious organizations? I'm kind of curious. This is a huge case. This is a major, major problem. If it were on the left, as I would say, again, it would be uh, it would be like the, the baker that was uh, they're trying to force uh, to make gay wedding cakes when the baker has never offered gay wedding cakes. See, this is the thing. This is the thing about what's called public accommodation. OK, if you're a restaurant 
And restaurants are such a great example because restaurants in the, in the Democrat South under segregation, you know, banned black people from going to the restaurants that white people were going to. Okay, maybe they, they banned black people entirely. I don't know exactly. I don't know all the intricacies of segregation. I do know that black customers, you know, had no rights, you know, if the restaurant didn't want them to, <laughs> you know, uh, which, is, which is insane. That's why segregation was overturned. Uh, this is why we have a civil rights commission. This is why we have civil rights laws. This is where equality comes in, that all Americans can go to any restaurant that they want if it's open to the public, if it's a private club. Say you've got the, 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 the Italian-American, you know, Columbus Descendants Club, and you want to limit it to actual descendants of Columbus. Well, that's okay if it's a private club. You're not open to the public. There's a membership involved. That's fine. I don't care. You know, that's what private organizations are all about. You know, and so, uh, so that's okay. However, if you're open to the public, there's something called public accommodation. And what that means is you cannot exclude anybody in the public from attending, you know, from, from your services if you're open to the public. Now, if you want to get messy and talk about, you know, no shirt, no shoes, you know, no gun, <laughs> no service, then we can have that discussion too. But as far as uh, what are immutable rights, like your religion, um, sorry, folks, that's not a, you can't do that. You know, and the distinction I make, and this is something that, that really, I think, uh, is not emphasized enough, is that is public accommodation only occurs for what the business regularly does, all right? And I use the example, you can't demand sushi in a pizza parlor. You can't, because they don't do that. So you, you can't demand something that the business doesn't do. So in the same way, you can't demand a gay wedding cake from a, from a bakery that doesn't make them. You know, you can't demand a special product that's not offered. However, you can demand a regular product that's offered to everybody or to other people. So in other words, if you, if you, in the segregated South, if you're black and walked into a restaurant and said, you know, no, black, no blacks allowed, you know, in that restaurant, uh, that, was, that was against civil rights. It, well, it, was, it became against it. And you could, you'd have a claim. So wait a minute, you know, this restaurant tried to keep me from going there. In the exact same way, and I'm hoping this Christian organization goes to the Civil Rights Commission and says, look, we got banned from this restaurant. You know, and Virginia itself, where's the governor? We'll, we'll find out as the article goes. But this is something the governor should get involved with, the state legislature should get involved with, and demand that, the, uh, that their own civil rights commission in the state of Virginia either close this restaurant down uh, or, or pay one big, massive reparation for what they did uh, to, in segregating this group out. There's more to the story. <laughs> I'll get to it in a second here. It says, on, them, on November 31st, Richmond restaurant, met, uh, restaurant Metzger Bar and Butchery. It's an interesting name. Wasn't Metzger one of the people in the civil rights movement? I, j- I just found it interesting. All right. So if somebody wants to clue me in, 215-383-3832, or you can do uh, live chat, which I don't check anywhere near often enough. So live chat's right there if you want to participate there. I'm not expecting a huge participation rate at this time, simply because Christmas is almost upon us. Um, so let's do a podcast. When you're bored after you open your presents, you know, you've had dinner, you know, you're, you're asleep and the next day, what do you want to do? You know, turn on your action radio. Okay. On November 3rd, 31st, back to the article, Richmond restaurant Metzger Bar and Butchery canceled reservation for a private event from the Family Foundation, as first reported by Virginia Business. The following day, Metzger posted about his decision on Instagram, citing the organization's views on abortion and LGBTQ rights as its reasons for refusing them service. Now, was that legal? <laughs> no, it wasn't legal. If you offer private events in your restaurant, you cannot discriminate against the family foundation, regardless of what it is. Okay? So what if, uh, what if the, uh, the, the, the Marxists of America organization showed up? You know, could, could they be denied service? In a, no. <laughs> you know, 
I'll, if they got violent, sure. You know, and people say, well, I'd be worried. And what if, what, let's turn this around because it's always fun to do that. So, so what if the Marxists of America went to um, Joe's Christian Faith Restaurant, you know, and said, well, we'd like to have a private function here. Well, if, they are, if they're open to private functions, then, you know, if they could accommodate them, if they, you know, they meet all the rules, you know, they're not too big a group, things like that, uh, then, yep, got to take them. <laughs> it's public accommodation. If you're open for private events, hey, have the group in, okay? Now, can they protest, yell, and scream, and harass the other customers? No. But this is interesting. Now, is that what they were worried about? Were they worried about the Christians? <laughs> you know, worried about the Christians, you know, har- harassing their LGBTQ folks? I don't think I've ever heard a news story where that happens. I, I can, you know, I don't know the, 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 the Christian church of non-LGBTQ. I don't think that, you know, if you want to post it, if you want to tell me a story about it, great. I know it works the other way. I know there's segregation on, on college campuses where there's LGBTQ people only or, you know, like black graduations and, uh, you know, black dorms and Hispanic dorms and things like that. I mean, that happens. And that's illegal, too. So this is the following day, Metzger posted about his decision on Instagram, setting the organization's views on abortion and LGBTQ rights. So here's a group that's worried about violence, saying that, you know, <laughs> okay, so they're worried about violence. I don't know what's more violent than an abortion, quite frankly. Um, but, uh, but they canceled it because they were, uh, what does it say here, uh, setting their views on abortion rights, LGBT, LGBTQ rights is for refusing service. Well, let me just see what it's, here's, here's, here's what they post, okay? So let me, let me uh, calm down because I'm really mad at this one, <laughs> you can tell. Metzger Bar and Butchery. Metzger Bar and Butchery has always prided itself on being an inclusive environment for people to dine in. Well, except for Christians, apparently. Then they say, in eight years of service, we have very rarely refused service to anyone who wished to dine with us. Recently, we refused service to a group that had booked an event with us after the owners of Metzger found out it was a group of donors to a political organization that seeks to deprive women and LGBTQ plus, I guess I'm trying to get everybody right, so in case they forgot a letter, they put the plus in there, persons of their basic human rights in Virginia. Well, let's talk about this. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe I'll read the whole thing. I'll come back to it. So we have always refused service to anyone for making our staff uncomfortable or unsafe. Uh, and this was the driving force behind our decision. Many of our staff are women and are members of the LGBTQ plus community. All of our staff are, oh, gee, I wonder if you have any Christians working there. That'd be interesting to find out. All of our staff are, are people with rights who deserve dignity and a safe work environment. We respect our staff's established rights as humans <laughs> and strive to create a work environment where they can do their jobs with dignity, comfort, and safety. Okay, this is right out of the UN Declaration of Human Rights. Okay, you look at this language. This is my first comment. This is right out of the UN Declaration of Human Rights. And what is the UN Declaration of Human Rights? It is a subservience to the New World Order. It is a subservience to the world government. It is subservience to the United Nations. Why? Because human rights are collective rights. Human rights in that everybody on the planet has exactly the same rights. And you can't exercise individual rights if everybody on the planet can exercise them collectively, okay? That is tyranny. That is control. That is the world government. So, and they use language like dignity. You have a right to dignity. What the hell does that mean? Dignity is what, is, is what you feel yourself. And feelings and emotions are not rights, okay? You don't have a right to feel safe because feelings are not rights. And the reason they're not rights is because the government cannot stop you from feeling it, okay? If the government cannot stop it, then it's not a right. And well, let me put it, let me put it, that's probably not the best way to explain it. Governments cannot, if a government can't stop it, rights are expressed individually. 
a right becomes a right because governments have stopped it in the past. Right is individual and absolute and can only be exercised individually. Right? You can't be given anything if it's right. You can't take it from somebody else if it's a right. You can't take the labor uh, and property of someone else and call it a right. None of those things apply. A right is what you exercise individually where the government cannot you know, infringe upon you. So you know, is dignity a right? No, because <laughs> that's what you feel about yourself. Is safety a right? Well, not if it infringes on somebody else's rights, which is what's happening here. So let's talk about that. If you read the UN Declaration of Human Rights, I'll probably do a show on that. It is critical to understand how dangerous that document really is. Now, it sounds great. Human rights. You know, the, the Declaration of Human Rights would say that anybody on the planet has a right to walk to our southern border and come here and take everything that we have because they're human. Well, of course they're human. Nobody's questioning whether they're human. We're questioning is whether that's a right, and it's not. Because anybody, it's not a right to come to the United States. Okay, nobody has a right to be here uh, except by birth, <laughs> you know, and even that can be you know, overturned eventually, you know, under certain circumstances, like you announce it. But uh, you know, if you're if you're born here, you have a right to be here. If you're a, a permanent resident, you have a right to be here, unless you violate your your residency status. Uh, if you're a visa holder, you have a right to be here until your visa expires. If you're not only do you have no right to be here, you have no rights while you're here, because you cannot have rights in a place you're not allowed to be in. That's a contradiction. That's an irrational statement to have a right in a place you're not even allowed to be in, which means you couldn't possibly exercise that right legally. See, that's the logic. This is why I say people say, well, the Supreme Court says illegal aliens have rights. Well, that's impossible for them to say. A, they don't grant rights. B, they don't make policy. They don't make regulation and they don't make law. So for all those reasons, the Supreme Court can say whatever they damn well please, but it doesn't make it real, doesn't make it right and doesn't make it so. So let's go back to this language. So study the UN Declaration of Human Rights. Because they talk about responsibilities. You know, you have, a, you have a right to free speech unless it offends someone. You know, you have a right to property unless somebody else needs it. <laughs> okay. This is what the UN Declaration of Human Rights says. Okay. So in other words, you have a right to profess your beliefs unless those beliefs impinge on, on somebody else in some way that they're not happy with. Well, then it's not a right. I don't care who's offended by Christianity or Judaism or Hinduism or even Islam. I don't care if you're offended by that. Now, you, you can stop people from doing damage to you and infringing on your rights but you can't stop them from exercising their religion. That's their right. Okay? Yeah, I'm not crazy about the voodoo and the chicken sacrifice. That impinges on the chickens and uh, animal cruelty. So I think there's another way to do that. That's another discussion. Anyway, let's go back to this, this, uh, this thing here, which I find quite fascinating. Metzger Bar and Butchery has always prided itself on being an inclusive environment. Well, that means everybody. So that's, that's their first lie. For people to dine in. Okay, good, makes sense. In eight years of service, we have rarely refused service to anyone who wished to dine with us. Good statement. And why did you rarely refuse? Uh, who else did they refuse service to? Is anybody curious? I am. Who else did they refuse service to? Then it says, we, recently we refused service to a group. Now, had they done anything wrong? Had they been there? Did they do any damage? No. This is what they think they might do in the future, maybe. This is what we call prior restraint. Prior restraint is illegal. You cannot take guns from people because you think they might commit a crime with them. Okay? In a free society, you, know, you cannot have, you, you due process, part of due process is you're innocent until proven guilty. So nothing can happen to you as long as you're innocent. Nothing can happen to you until you're proven guilty. That's what due process is. All right? So you can't arrest people for what they might do. Oh, we want to prevent gun violence. Okay, well, then arm everybody. <laughs> okay? The way that you prevent crimes being committed is that you take preventions yourself to prevent crimes from being committed. committed. And that means alarms, security, phones, cameras, 
you know, guns, you know, all those things are what you do. You can't, and the reason we do that is not to allow criminals to commit crimes, just the contrary. We do this so that all the honest, law-abiding citizens aren't victims and having their rights taken away, having not done anything. That is what the, that is what the presumption of innocence is all about. It's not to protect the criminals, it's to protect the innocent, the regular law-abiding citizen. This is why prior restraint is illegal. You cannot take from people, you cannot take things away from people for, for what you think they might do. Oh, but Greg, what about people that are you know, uh, mentally incompetent or insane or things like that? There is a process for that. It involves a judge and a doctor and probably a hospital. Okay? There is a process for that, but can you be hauled off the street by a cop because they think you might do something or they disagree with you personally? No. <laughs> you, know, you need probable cause. That's part of due process. So innocent until proven guilty, and, and the restaurant's not a legal proceeding, so this is a different argument. All right? The restaurant obviously is a commercial operation, but they come under public accommodation. They, they can't stop somebody from, from dining at the restaurant you know, until some, now can they refuse service if somebody dines in the restaurant and they're violent? Sure, because they've already, they've already proven that they cannot be trusted in the restaurant. But to refuse service in advance for a group that was accepted because you don't like their political views? No, you can't do that. You know, what, what if a uh, uh, Christian restaurant started refusing Marxists just on principle? So I'm, I'm sorry, the, you know, they put a big sign on the door, no shoot, no, no, no shirt, no shoes, no Marxists, you know, or nobody not carrying a gun. <laughs> You know, I mean, we can, we can do this. So we're, we're, unless you're carrying a gun in here, you know, for the safety of other customers, we, for the safety of all customers, we've determined that every customer has to carry a gun. Wouldn't that be fascinating? Because the criminals already are. So, so you know, what you're doing is, is you're, you're stopping the criminals by doing that. But wouldn't that be an interesting thing? That'd be an interesting legal challenge. You can't stop people from coming in here without a gun. Why not? We, we don't feel safe. <laughs> Use the same argument against them. That would be fascinating. Let's get back to this, uh, this little posting here. So they booked an event with owner, owners Metzger found but there was a group of donors to a political organization that seeks to deprive women and LGBTQ. Um, I'm not sure how many gay folks or transgender folks, because you know what that does to your fertility, um, you know, are, are, are seeking abortions, I mean, which is kind of interesting. And besides, the states, you know, all the Supreme Court did, and this is what's fascinating too, I need to restate that. The only thing the Supreme Court did was corrected their incredibly wrong, unconstitutional, illegal decision in Roe v. Wade. Roe v. Wade was not a legal decision. Why? Because the courts can't make policy, regulation, or law. They can't grant rights. They cannot make up rights. They can't do what they do. This is why you need to put them back in the box and, and get rid of judicial review. Because they figure if they can review a decision and decide whether it's constitutional, they can also provide a remedy. Now, they can, they can block an action that they deem unconstitutional. That the Supreme Court can do. I actually had to change that in my original view, my original bill on judicial review. But that's all they can do. They cannot provide a remedy. They cannot provide a policy, a regulation, a law, uh, um, or anything. They, can't, they cannot redress a grievance. They can't do anything like that. All they can do is stop an action. That's the check and balance. That, that's where the check ends. Fascinating, isn't it? Yeah, people, people honored Roe v. Wade for 50 years when they never had to. No state in the, in the country had to honor Roe v. Wade. No hospital had to honor Roe v. Wade. Because it was illegal. It was an illegal decision. So all the court did, finally, was, was correct their illegal decision. And why didn't Congress do that? Congress would have done that any time. Pass a law saying that uh, abortion is a state issue. And, you know, uh, Roe v. Wade is overturned. They can do it. You know, if the Congress passes a law and the president signs that law, that overturns the Supreme Court decision. Oh, gee, I've never heard that before. I thought they, uh, you needed a constitutional amendment. That's BS. You see that in the Constitution anywhere? It takes a constitutional amendment to overturn a Supreme Court decision? Oh, please. All it takes is an act of Congress and signed by the president. Two of the three branches against one. 
any two branches can overrule the third branch. The Supreme Court and the president can overrule Congress. The president and the Congress can overrule the Supreme Court. The Congress and the Supreme Court can overrule the president. That's how it works. That's where three branches of government, because two out of three ain't bad. <laughs> you know. So two out of three works. But the part that's missing, the part that's never being done, is the part that says that the Congress and the president, when they sign, a, when they uh, um, pass and sign a law, can overturn any Supreme Court decision. That's how the government works. That's why. And the first thing they should overturn is Marbury versus Madison. The second thing they should do is start removing judges, not justices. That's not in the Constitution. Judges is. Okay, look at Article Three. If you think I'm wrong, I'll prove it to you. The judges of the Supreme Court can be overturned by an act of Congress signed by the president. Just that simple. Two out of three. Two branches of government overruling a third. That's the check and balance. That's, that's federalism. That is the definition of federalism. So why they don't do that, they think the Supreme Court is some kind of lofty you know, god ruling over all of the government. They're not. They're just another branch of government. That's all they are. No more, no less. All right. <laughs> this is fun. I'm having a good time. I, I thought I'd actually cover a bunch of articles. It looks like I'm not going to get to most of them. But I find this so fascinating of what's not being done because there's so much in this, in this tweet that if you look into it, you understand their mindset is UN world government. That's really what this, what's behind this. What's behind keeping the Christians out is the UN atheist Marxist world government under the guise of alleged, quote, human, in other words, collective rights. And there's no such thing as a collective right, by the way. A right by definition is individual. So there's no such thing as a collective right, and yet that's what they're exercising. All right. ACLU had that position uh, way back when. I actually had an argument. It was uh, on the Ron Owens show back in San Francisco. It was like 30 years ago, maybe more. And I remember someone from the ACLU came on, and I wasn't as good a debater then. <laughs> Things have changed. Um, but I talked to the ACLU person, and uh, Ron just let me go, which is great. I said, there's no such thing as a collective right. Oh, yes, there is. We've determined. I said, well, how did you do that? It's not in the Constitution. Aren't rights all individual? And I didn't pursue it as much as I should. And Ron didn't really jump on it either. But uh, I made that point very clearly. And this is why I want to have uh, Melba Thomas, I think uh, Pearson, Melba Pearson, Deputy Director of the ACLU here in Florida, back on. Because I want to talk about the, the whole, you know, misunderstood uh, uh, thing called a collective right because there's no such thing because if it's collective it's not a right you cannot have a right over another person this is why abortion is not a right you know a mother cannot have a right over an unborn child that unborn child being a person has a right has a right to live first of all and this is from a person who was formerly pro-choice in my youth you know before before ultrasounds before i knew better um before i realized actually what was going on and that's a big thing too and this is what a, what a lot of people have come to understand is that people who were thinking, well, this is, it is, you know, because you're not aborting a person. If you think you're just aborting a few cells that might have divided, that doesn't seem so bad to people, even though a lot of folks believe, you know, abortion uh, is wrong simply because life does begin at conception. Well, life, life actually be, begins before conception. I'm sorry, folks, sperms and eggs are alive. Otherwise, they, they don't create life. They don't go from non-life to life. You know, when those cells are divided, they're actually alive. So life begins before conception, but that's a whole other argument we should probably have sometime. I'm not going to that today. But when you think about it, okay, so life begins at conception. I think a lot of people in this country, uh, me back in my youth, you know, would think that if you're just stopping cells from further dividing, you know, there's no pain, there's no person, there's no, there's no, yeah, it's not a good idea. Yeah, it's, oh, you don't want to do it. Oh, God, you have to. You know, the, whatever circumstances people find themselves in where they do that. But that was, that was the pro-choice attitude before. Well, then ultrasounds came along and went, what? That's what they're aborting? That's a person. That's a baby. 
and you look at this and you go, wait a minute. You know, and then you realize you've been lied to and you think, well, okay, <laughs> change that view right away. Um, and so uh, that was the first thing that, that made me pro-life. The second thing was having a, having a kid. I don't know any, how any parent, you know, can be pro-choice in terms of the way they talk about this choice. I just don't understand it, but that's me. I digress. But let's talk about the political aspect. It's not a right. You do not have a right over somebody else, and that includes uh, mothers over fathers. You cannot make a man a father who chooses not to be any more than the law, you know, can't force a, a woman to be a mother if she doesn't want to be. You, they can't do it. And we have all kinds of other options, adoption, foster care, you know, families, you know, uh, fathers uh, assuming the parental rights, things like that. So there's no, there's no force that can make a woman a mother. In the same way, there should be no force that can make a man a father paying for 18 years, years of child support when he chooses not to. Now, of course, he'll have no parental rights, just as a mother who wanted an abortion and, and if the child lives, hopefully, uh, and the father assumes rights, that woman has no parental rights because an abortion usually means killing. So if you're willing to kill your child willingly, how can you have a right to that child? That doesn't make sense either. Anyway, th- those are all things we can talk about, but it goes back to here. Metzger found out, this is the, uh, um, this is the tweet, the owners of Metzger found out uh, it was a group of donors to a political organization that seeks to deprive women and LGBTQ persons of their basic human rights. Well, that's not true. First of all, basic human rights are collective rights, and there's no such thing. Nobody has a basic human right to anything anybody else has, so the whole UN thing will throw that out too. And that's in Virginia. So where's Virginia? Then it says, we have always refused service to anyone for making our staff uncomfortable or unsafe. Well, how would they know that? What is it about Christians that they find uncomfortable or unsafe? If you're unsafe with Christians, you can't refuse service because you, you, you feel unsafe because of Christians any more than you can say, well, I feel unsafe if black people are in my restaurant or Hispanic people are in my restaurant or white people are in my restaurant. Say I got a great soul kitchen, south side of Chicago, right? Uh, the owners are black, the customers are black, uh, the staff is black, and who cares, right? A bunch of white folks walk in. Hey, can we dine at your restaurant, please? Everybody stares at them. Well, I, uh, uh, are you sure this is the place you want to be? <laughs> you know, and they don't throw them out, but it's like, well, gee, I don't know if you want to, you want to be here. Have you looked around the restaurant? You know, uh, maybe, uh, maybe you want to go, you know, go dine at Mighty Whitey restaurant down the street. Okay. Can they do that? No. And this is a person who's been to, you know, like in Oakland, in California. You know, I lived in a predominantly black neighborhood. What am I not going to go to the local restaurants? Of course I am. Okay. What if I was the only white guy there? I didn't care. There was a blues place. There's a blues bar, I remember, in, uh, uh, in the, the Piedmont section. Well, it was it Piedmont or Oakland? Anyway, it's around Lake Merritt in Oakland. You look at a map, you look around Lake Merritt in Oakland. And there was uh, there's a bar uh, that had live music, and it was blues. And it was like, I'd say, 99% black customers, black waiters, black owners. It was a great place to go. I loved it there. And I'd be like one of maybe three white people in the place of, you know, 400. <laughs> no, it wasn't that big. Maybe 100, 150 people. Big place. I didn't care. I went there all the time. I had friends there, you know, so it didn't matter. So if you don't, but nobody said to me, well, uh, you know, you're, you're white and you're, you're amongst a whole bunch of black people. Nobody ever said that to me. He says, Hey, come on in. Well, I mean, we talk blues, you know, we, we compare musicians. We, we talk about the band we do things like that. You know, nobody said color. Nobody cared that I was, that I was, you know, this is, this is, Calif- this is one thing California is pretty good, actually. Um, they're, they're bad. They're worse now. I don't know what's going on. I'd love to go back to that bar and check it out. But yeah, I've never had a problem you know, being the only white person in any number of environments, Chinatown, <laughs> you know, you know, wherever I was in San Francisco, who cared? Didn't matter. You know, the nice thing about San Francisco uh, is that everybody's a minority and this would be a great microcosm. If you want to go to a place that's fascinating, go to San Francisco. It's the only place I know where they had a restaurant called Carlos Murphy's. In other words, it was a, it was a Spanish Irish restaurant <laughs> or Mexican Irish restaurant. 
you know, so you'd have like, you know, tacos and Guinness. It was fabulous. There was another place too that was Indian and Irish and I forgot what it was called. But uh, again, you'd, you'd have, uh, you know, tandoori chicken, you know, with, uh, with, with cabbage and ham. <laughs> it was fabulous. So, so the great thing about these cultures is the mixing of cultures and everybody's a minority. So nobody cared. I mean, really didn't, you know, in, in uh, you know, you'd frequently see like a, like a Samoan, an Indian couple, or you'd have like, uh, I don't know, whatever, you know, Pacific Islander and, and a Jewish person. I mean, it, nobody cared. And it was fascinating. Anyway, so, but the question is, how do you feel unsafe in that environment? How do you know ahead of time that because they're Christians, you think you're going to feel unsafe? So what is really being made unsafe with these people? What, what is unsafe? Their beliefs? That's what's being made unsafe, right? That's what I think. I mean, I asked it as a question, but I think, I think that what they're really saying is that they're, they think that their beliefs are unsafe because they cannot practice their Marxism, their atheism. They cannot, uh, and there's a lot of, and I don't understand this because a lot of LGBTQ, you know, plus folks are Christians. Oops. Now what do you do? Did they ask how many of the Christian group was LGBTQ plus, or did they just assume because they were Christian, there were no LGBTQ plus people. Look, I lived in San Francisco for 30 years, you know, and gay and lesbian folks have every political and racial and cultural and national background you can think of. Okay. It's, it's, you can't make those decisions. You can't make those judgments. That's why I never did. I didn't care. You know, I was a white guy, straight guy, you know, uh, it was actually, it's funny. The first time I went to the Castro was by accident. I moved to San Francisco back in 84. And I lived right across from the Haight-Ashbury. So I'm right across from the hippies. And of course, I'm wandering through the Haight-Ashbury. You know me, I'm walking. And I walked all the way to San Francisco. And all of a sudden, guys were asking for my phone number. I said, wait a minute. And, and I said, I, I, I talked to one person you know, on the street. I said, what's, what's going on here? How come all the guys are asking for my phone number? He said, dude, do you know where you are? I said, no. <laughs> he said, where are you from? I said, I said Boston, Massachusetts, actually Lexington, right? He says, well, let me clue you in. And we had a great chat, actually. It was funny. Uh, he's a dude, first of all, it's the mustache. Uh, and secondly, you're in the Castro. Uh, this is, this is the gay center of San Francisco. I'm like, Oh really? Oh, okay. yeah. I'm around going, Hmm. So then you start to like notice the names on the restaurants and bars and things. And you go, Oh, Oh, okay. Now I get it. So I had a great wake up call, but you know, nobody cared. It was, it was really quite fascinating, but, uh, yeah, that was my first experience, you know, being, uh, you know, asked by guys, you know, for, for dates and get my phone number and stuff. And, and just, it didn't happen all the time. It was just a few, but you notice right away when someone does. And then when the second person does, it's like, Oh, this is really interesting. Anyway, when I was young and had a big mustache, you know, I guess that was attractive, but, uh, it, it was all quite fascinating, but I had a great time. Castro is a fascinating neighborhood. The architecture is great. Uh, it's a great place to go. The Castro theater is legendary. Uh, amazing. They had live performances. They had, uh, there's two places. And I don't know if they still happen, but they had these Wurlitzer organs. They had these fabulous Wurlitzers, and they would play them. See, a lot of theaters used to have the, the Wurlitzer organ, and they would play before the show. You, you didn't have advertising. You had a concert, right? Or you'd have some kind of band or some, some live music, and then you'd see the movie. And the Wurlitzer, they, it goes into like this cavern. They have this under, under the floor thing, so the whole thing drops down. It's really elaborate. But I'm pretty sure the Castro Theater still has it, and I think the Grand Lake in Oakland used to. I'm not sure. Anyway, I'm California reminiscing right now. Anyway, so, uh, so the Castro is a great neighborhood. Uh, fabulous restaurants, great architecture. It was part of my city tour. Uh, now, there's some other things that happened there, too, that was kind of interesting, that kind of shocked the people from the Midwest, but you know, we'll go into that another time. Uh, but that's, that's kind of what happened. And so uh, I was very familiar with Castro, with the hate, uh, with a bunch of Chinatown, um, North Beach, the Italian section, uh, Union Square, you know, where the rich folks shop. Uh, it was real, and that was all part of my city tour. So I was well-versed in all my San Francisco neighborhoods. So the question comes back to these, these, you know, these folks that are worried about a Christian organization for who they donate to. 
Now, I didn't know donations were an act of violence. But that's what they're saying here. Well, we feel unsafe because these people are donating. You know, and it goes to the basic human rights. I'll be done with this in a minute. I'll take a, take a break and we'll, uh, I have a great interview to play for you in the, in the second hour. Anyway, I just find this whole thing fascinating. Let me see if we can finish it. We have always refused service to anyone for making our staff uncomfortable or unsafe. And this was the driving force behind our decision. So in other words, a Christian group that had done nothing except political donations that these people didn't approve of, and that's what made them feel unsafe, they banned a group from coming to the restaurant. That is illegal, but they did it anyway. And they might get away with it unless Virginia or the county or the city takes up action against these folks and, and uh, does exactly to them what was done to the Christian baker for not making gay, a gay wedding cake that they never make. These people offer private dining services to private parties. They cannot discriminate on those private parties. Well, yeah, like I say, if there's a reason not to, that they've had violence in the past, yeah, I would do that. Or like a drunk customer comes in, do you have to let them into your bar? No. If they were drunk and disorderly before, do you have to let them back in? I don't think so. I don't know what the lies on that. It'd be interesting to find out. Huh. It says many of our staff are women and or members of the LGBTQ community. Well, that doesn't matter. You, you can't use that as a means to discriminate against Christians. Anyway, it says all of our staff are people with rights who deserve dignity and a safe work environment. Well, yeah, but it's up to the employer to make the work environment safe, uh, you know, regardless of who walks in. So if you have a drunk customer, you know, you make your employee safe by removing the drunk customer and you get them a cab so they don't kill themselves on the way home. That makes sense. But uh, do you have a right to stop somebody else from going to your restaurant? And the answer is no, you do not. And that's what makes this so, uh, so fast. Dignity. What is undignified about Christianity? What is undignified about Christians? How is somebody's dignity affected by Christians dining at a restaurant? You know, are they holding a prayer meeting? Are they holding a revival? I don't think so. I think they were going to dinner. Okay. And even if they were holding a prayer meeting, First of all, you'd be, you know, they probably want to do it in the, in the church and stuff like that in, in a bigger place, you know, outdoor place or something like that. But even if they were holding, now I would talk to the restaurant ahead of time. See, so much of this can be accomplished by people just talking to each other. Anyway, it says we respect our staff's established rights. Okay, those rights are not established. All right, the UN Declaration of Human Rights, <clears throat> it has no jurisdiction in the United States. None. Those rights are not established. They are in a lot of countries who have adopted the UN Declaration of Human Rights, thinking that those are individual rights when they're not, they're collective. And that's just a mistake on their part. We spent a lot of time in Australia. Uh, I spent, well, I didn't spend, well, I spent time there, but I'm saying, but, but I worked with uh, Jen Clark in Australia on making very clear that we wrote an Australian bill of individual rights. I'm going to have to take a break in a minute. I'm kind of running out of voice here. It's a good idea anyway. I should probably take a break. Uh, but that's, but that, was the, the, that was all about was actually overturning the bogus UN Declaration of Human Rights and hoping to introduce and get past an Australian bill of individual rights, which is exactly the opposite. So whenever you hear human rights, think collective. Those are collective world government oppressions. Human rights are slavery. It's, it's Orwell. It's right out of Orwell. Human rights are slavery. That's exactly what they're talking about there. Create a safer environment where they can do their jobs with dignity, comfort, and safety. Well, I don't know about you, but I don't think everybody's comfortable at work. <laughs> First of all, work is damn miserable. Uh, most people don't like their jobs. But dignity? How do you define dignity? Is it somehow undignified to be around Christians? Is it undignified if people don't believe in abortion? Is it undignified uh, if they don't believe in, in uh, same-sex people getting married or, or, or calling it a marriage? I think most Christians, if you ask them, and I'd be curious to find out whether they actually make a distinction at all. You know, in other words, uh, my position is very simple. I don't care what people do individually. What I do care about is what's in law and what's in our language. In our, la in our language, marriage means a certain thing, and in law, a marriage means a certain thing. And those are things we should keep. 
somebody wants to have a different, uh, or, you know, different union, call it a different union because it is different. You know, a same-sex union is different than a marriage by virtue of the people involved. Anyway, enough on that. I didn't even got to the article. <laughs> uh, maybe I should get to the article. Maybe I'll finish that and then I'll do stuff that third hour. I've got many stories for you. So I'll play a couple of things for you here and I'll be right back. Greg Penglis here for my book, The Complete Guide to Flight Instruction. Everyone at some point in their life wants to learn how to fly. Few try. Even fewer go on to get a license. I believe a major reason for that is how we teach people how to fly. My book is designed to help you navigate the flight training system, but it's so much more than that. It really describes an entirely new way to teach flying. So if you've never tried a lesson or got discouraged in your training and quit for any reason, this book can help you. Don't be a rope pilot who just follows procedures. Be a thinking pilot who makes great decisions, who understands all the reasons why we do what we do. You can incorporate these principles into your own flight training at any time. The Complete Guide to Flight Instruction is featured on the Action Radio with Greg Pankless Facebook page and is available from Amazon.com. This is Greg Penglis for Strike Force, your source for pure energy. Strike Force is a concentrated energy drink that turns a half liter of your favorite beverage into an energy drink. You make your energy drink yourself. Action Radio is an affiliate of Strike Force, so our listeners get a 20% discount. All you do is add our code WYL to the discount code window at checkout. W-Y-L comes from our website, Write Your Laws. So, you can get your energy drink, a 20% discount, and help Action Radio change the relationship of we the people to our government. Not bad. Strikeforce is at StrikeforceEnergy.com. That's StrikeforceEnergy.com. Start your engines. Hello, this is Greg Penglis for our newest shooting range here in Milton, Florida. Stand your ground. My friend, Jason Myers, and crew are creating an incredible facility for our city. Stand your ground is located at 6632 Elba Street. The phone number is 850-789-1776. Their email is standyourground1776 at gmail.com. Here you'll find either in process or already going an indoor shooting range, axe throwing, archery, a rage room, self-defense classes, concealed carry weapons classes, security license training, paintball, a full-service gun store, and 24-7 online ordering. So come on down or contact them by phone, email, or website and learn how you can best stand your ground. Joe Biden's Dark Winter no freedom, no liberty, no guns, no representation, no oil, no coal, no nuclear power, no space force, no constitution, no family gatherings, no vacations, just taxes, work, misery, masks, lockdowns, and ever more government. This is what will happen if you let Marxists steal the election. This has been a public service announcement of Action Radio, reminding you it's time to get off your butt and save your country. 
Action Radio, part of the ADHD Radio Network, the ultimate free speech zone. We the people give our consent to be governed through writing the laws by which we are governed and have the power through juries to nullify the laws by which we do not consent to be governed. At Action Radio, we don't report the news. We are the news. Every other show reports what has happened. We talk about what can happen. From the questions no one has thought to ask, to the answers no one has thought to consider, to the actions no one has dared to take, that is Action Radio. back and we're talking about the segregation restaurant the the metzger um what's it called here let's scroll back up top here uh metzger bar and butchery <laughs> which is a really interesting name for a place so the segregation restaurant that segregates uh that discriminates uh and bans christians um from from dining at the restaurant with with no proven uh you know, track record of doing anything. Uh, that, that's, uh, that's illegal. It's against civil rights. It's against uh, public accommodation. You know, if you open the public and you put a product and someone walks in, you know, you have to, uh, you have to honor that person. Uh, that's how public accommodation works. Okay. All right. So skipping past this again, just to let uh, folks know, I'm quoting from, this is Yahoo, exclamation point, news, a source I almost never use. Uh, Joseph Lamour, L-A-M-O-U-R, December 8th, 2022. And it says a five-minute read. <laughs> I've been talking about this for almost an hour. <laughs> that amuses me. All right. So let's go back to what he said here. It's just a little bit more. It says uh, neither Metzger nor the Family Foundation responded to today.com uh, request for comment. So nobody's talking. We got a little, nice little picture of this, too. It's on, uh, it's on our Oh My God group, and it's in the, I think it's in our legal um, project also. I post this, uh, this article. So nobody's talking. Then it says, the same day the Family Foundation's president, Victoria Cobb, penned a blog post with the organization's side of the incident. Uh, so, oh, story continues. Oh, let's continue. This is interesting. It says, have you ever been denied a meal because of your beliefs? Last night, our team and supporters got that firsthand experience when Metzger's Bar and Butchery in Richmond, Virginia, refused to service our pre-reserved event leaving us scrambling just moments. And this is from uh, the, the, the uh, Cobb, what's first name, Victoria Cobb. All right, she says that uh, adding that the group had planned a gathering of supporters and interested parties at the restaurant. Next quote, she says, about an hour and a half before the event was to take place, one of the restaurant's owners called our team to cancel the event. As our VP of operations explained that guests were arriving at their restaurant shortly, she asked for an explanation. Sure enough, an employee looked up our organization and the wait staff refused to serve us. Oh, so there we go. So this is blaming it on, on, on the servers. The management to do that. The server. See, see, if management were real management, they would have said, shut up, serve these people, their customers. You know, take, keep your personal beliefs outside. Don't, 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 doesn't every company say that? You know, if you're LGBTQ or Marxist or, or Christian or uh, conservative or liberal, you know, and you're working for a place, can you do whatever you want? No. In the same way that football players could be fired for taking a knee simply because, you know, they're in uniform. You're working for the company. Now, is your First Amendment right to take a knee being excluded uh, all the time? No, it's not. So if you want to go play the national anthem and take a knee in public and do that kind of stuff, well, you know, the company might have, a, have an issue, but that's not, not, now it's a First Amendment case. But if you're in uniform or if you're working at a company, I mean, you know, if you work at, at McDonald's, can you stand on the counter and start preaching? No, 
Does that mean you can't preach? No, it doesn't. But don't preach there. You're working. <laughs> okay. So there are appropriate places uh, to exercise your rights. Now, it gets messy when you talk about civil disobedience because there are times when you do have to make people uncomfortable. Like I, I tried to organize a, a Second Amendment barbecue in San Francisco, an open carry event in Golden Gate Park. <laughs> Didn't get anywhere. I couldn't get any support for it. But that would have been, uh, that would have been A, against their unconstitutional law uh, on carrying firearms, and, and B, it might have made a lot of folks uncomfortable. I don't care. I mean, the fact that's, that exercising your rights makes somebody else uncomfortable is irrelevant because how they feel about your rights is irrelevant. You still have a right. You have a right whether anybody agrees with you or disagrees with you. See, that's the whole point of rights. That's the difference between a republic and a democracy. Right? Those that believe in democracy and believe in human rights think that they can tell you what to do with your rights. Therefore, you're right. you don't have rights. The whole point of rights, the whole point of free speech is that it is most important specifically when people are uncomfortable. You know, the Second Amendment is, is specifically uh, at its best when the government's trying to ban guns or when there's an emergency or, or like a natural disaster, a hurricane or a flood. And the government, you know, like after Katrina, you know, the oppressive, unconstitutional government comes in and tries to take firearms. For what reason? Well, you might do something. Well, you can't arrest people or take things for what they might do. That's how it works. That's why red flags, flag laws are illegal. We go over this over and over and over. Anyway, I've done that enough times. Back to the post here. So, uh, so it was about an hour and a half before the event was set to take place. All right. Anyway, so it says the staff refused to serve them. Then the Victoria cop goes on to compare, this is back to the article, goes on to compare the situation to the famous 1960 incident where a department store refused service to 34 Virginia Union University students because they were black. See, it's exactly the same exact Segregation is segregation. It doesn't change just because one group is black and the other group is Christian. If you're discriminating against a group, then you're engaged in discrimination and segregation. Okay, that's how it works. Then uh, further quote, welcome to the double standards of the left, uh, writes uh, Victoria Cobb, further likening the incident to the case of a Colorado baker, Jack Phillips. We sure heard about that case. I've talked about it uh, on this hour. Phillips was the victor in a tw- of a 2018 Supreme Court case. They're still going after him, by the way. That hasn't stopped. He was a victor of a 2018 Supreme Court case, back to the article, over his refusal to create a wedding cake for a same-sex couple. Later in 2021, Phillips was found to have violated discrimination laws when he refused to bake a birthday cake for a trans woman. Okay? Now, again, it all comes down to does he make trans birthday cakes? No. Does he make same-sex wedding cakes? No, he does not. You cannot force a company to make something that they don't make under the guise of somebody walking in to demand it. Because if you could do that, I could walk into a pizza place and demand sushi. Go ahead. We don't make sushi. We make pizza. I don't care. I want sushi. Go ahead and make it, or I'm going to have you closed down. Doesn't that sound ridiculous? All right. Well, in the same way here, if they don't make the – I know it's political. I know, that, I know the, the folks are trying to make a point by destroying anything Christian, and that's, that's what's going on here. So the restaurant is trying to destroy Christianity, saying if you're Christian, you're a second-class citizen, you're not good enough. You know, so you can't come into our restaurant because we don't like what you stand for. We don't like your political beliefs. We don't like where you put your money. Therefore, we're not going to serve you. Well, that's, not a, <laughs> that's, that's, that's segregation. That's discrimination. Can't be done. What else did she say here? So this is, this is fascinating. Um, yeah. Anyway, so this is back to the quote here from Victoria Cobb. She says, we believe there is no square in all the universe over which God has not claimed. Mine claims mine. And that includes the, the arenas of civil government and public policy where we spend much of our time. She says, read the about, says, read the about page on, on the Family Foundation website. The organization advocates for policies based on biblical principles, including lobbying against same-sex marriage, abortion rights, and teaching critical race theory in the public schools. Makes sense to me. 
Since the incident, the article says, Yelp has frozen reviews for Metzger, citing that the business is being monitored by Yelp's support team for content related to media reports. Yelp takes this action when a business makes the news for something controversial, saying on his website that people often go to Yelp with the intention of sharing their views on a situation in a review, post or other content. Well, I wonder which ones they were blocking. Were they blocking all of them or just the Christian ones? That would be interesting. So these comments typically don't reflect a personal consumer experience with the business. Oh, that's their excuse. Anyway, the Family Foundation is similarly facing increased attention. The organization's staff page has similarly been disabled with the message citing an increase in inappropriate messages being left for our staff as a reason for the change. So you got the Family Foundation, which was having a dinner. I think I sort of left Victoria's quotes and went into the article itself. Uh, but I think I, hopefully that was, that was clear. Because he does go back and forth. Well, let's get the legal perspective. And then I have, uh, I have a treat for you in the next hour. Uh, you know, me not talking. It's still me talking, but it, it, you know, it, it, it was done a few years ago. So the legal perspective of our Yahoo! exclamation point news article says the, this incident comes as arguments are being heard in another high-profile case over anti-discrimination, free speech, and religious freedom. Okay, there's no such thing as anti-discrimination. Discrimination is discrimination either exists or doesn't exist. There's no such thing as anti-discrimination. That, that's, a, that, that's like saying reverse racism or reverse discrimination. Discrimination is discrimination. Racism is racism. It all depends on the parties involved, you know, and that, whether it's one of those things. But there's no such thing as reverse. It's still racism. You know, if a black company doesn't hire a white person, that's still racism. Just as if a white company didn't hire a black person, that's still racism. You know, they don't change. Anyway, Back to the legal perspective. This incident comes as arguments are being heard in another high-profile case over anti-discrimination, free speech, and religious freedom in the case of 303 Creative LLC v. Elenis. That's E-L-E-N-I-S. And I'm not sure what 303, the number 303, creative word LLC uh, means because I haven't heard that case. It says the plaintiff in the case is Colorado's Laurie Smith, an evangelical Christian web designer, who refuses to create wedding websites for same-sex couples despite her state of residence's stringent anti-discrimination laws. You can't force people to offer a product. You can only make it illegal for companies to discriminate um, when they do offer a product. See, that's the difference. You can't force people to offer products. You know, I can't go to, uh, well, I say my favorite one, you know, can I go to a, a you know, restaurant and demand sushi? No, you can't. I said, nobody ever uses that example. I wish they would. Makes sense to me. All right. So let me get the quote here. Richard W. Garnett, who's the web designer, who says, one reason why I think the restaurant story is getting a lot of attention is because it happened on basically the same day as the arguments in the Supreme Court about the web designer. Uh, Richard W. Garnett, uh, Notre Dame Law. Okay, so this is from, see, the thing about this is what kills me about journalism. All right. They give you a quote. Then, you t- then they tell you who it's by. And then they give you the rest of the quote. I don't know where that came in journalism school, but it's, it's amazingly distracting. So let me try this again. Read it the way I would write it. Richard W. Garnett, a Notre Dame Law School professor and director of the Notre Dame program on church, state, and society, tells today.com, one reason why I think the restaurant story is getting a lot of attention is because it happened on basically the same day as the arguments in the Supreme Court about the web designer. And for this restaurant story to come out, it kind of looks like, whoa, the tables are turned. Well, like I said, discrimination is discrimination. Just depends on the players. Garnett says, back to the article, Garnett says that restaurants are governed by public accommodation laws. Gee, where have we heard that before? I don't know, 20 minutes ago? (laughs) Public accommodation laws, which stipulate that restaurants are not allowed to deny service on the basis of certain protected categories like race, sex, religion, 
and at times sexual orientation based on local laws. Okay, so this is why I want to get ideology and religion as protected civil rights. Okay, they need to be on the Civil Rights Act so the Civil Rights Commission can go after a restaurant for discriminating against a religion. That would be any religion. Okay, if you're a Buddhist restaurant, you don't want Jews in your restaurant. I'm sorry. If you're an Islamic restaurant, you don't want Christians in your restaurant. Too bad. That's that, you know, if you're, if you're open to the public, you're open to the public. That's what public accommodation means. I think I'll click on this section on public accommodation laws. This might be kind of interesting. Anyway, so the quote is from Garnett again. These public accommodation laws have been around for a long time and started out having to do with making sure people had access to things like trains, movie theaters, restaurants, and so on. In other words, the segregated Democrat South, right? Then we get another quote here. The American Civil Liberties Union says that while there is no federal law that bans discrimination based on sexual orientation or gender identity in public accommodation, like restaurants, theaters, and other businesses, there are state and local laws, like those in Colorado, where this kind of discrimination is banned. Okay? So if it's banned for discriminating against LGBTQ plus people, it's also banned for discriminating against Christians. That's called the Equal Protection of the Laws. It's in the 14th Amendment. Feel free to look it up. On the other hand, back to the article, on the other hand, Garnett says that discrimination based on the basis of political beliefs are only protected in a few areas in the United States, including Washington, D.C. Oh, really? Tell that to the people in the, in the D.C. Gulag jail who were there taking selfies in the Capitol on January 6th. Do you really believe it? What is this written? This guy's an idiot. <laughs> uh, only, oh, okay, they're only protected in a few areas in the United States, including Washington, D.C. I would tend to disagree. Washington, D.C. is specifically a place where political beliefs are not protected. Only liberal political beliefs are protected in Washington, D.C. Only leftist Marxist, anti-government, anti-American, anti-everything beliefs are protected in Washington, D.C. But, uh, uh, but religious beliefs uh, and political beliefs, if they counter any of those other things I mentioned, are not protected in D.C. In fact, just the opposite. They're prosecuted and jailed. And he says, but not in Virginia where this case occurred uh, do they have local protection. Garnett says, again, generally speaking, public accommodation laws don't protect people from exclusion on the basis of things like political expression, political affiliation, or political beliefs. Of course, they should, right? That's why I write a bill on it. But some jurisdictions, the local governments actually have added protections for people's political affiliation. Ooh, I'm going to have to look those up. Let's look at public accommodation laws. Let's see what, uh, what Yahoo, what uh, Mr. Garnett said on that particular topic. And then I have, uh, I have an interview to play for you. Who's kind of fun? I, you know. Uh, oh, this is the National Network, ADA. Is that the, what is the ADA? Is that the Americans for Democratic Action? What is the ADA? I'll have to find, I'll find that out in a minute. Anyway, so what are public accommodations? A public accommodation is a private entity uh, that owns, operates, leases, or leases to a place of public accommodation. So public accommodation is public accommodation. It's a little redundant, don't you think? It says places of public accommodation include a wide range of entities such as restaurants, hotels, theaters, doctor's offices, pharmacies, retail stores, museums, libraries, amusement parks, private schools, and daycare centers. Private clubs and religious organizations are exempt from oh, this part of the Americans with Disabilities Act. I bet you that's what it is. Private clubs and religious organizations are exempt from the ADA's Title III requirement for public accommodation. That is a very narrow view of public accommodation. Certainly not my view. Certainly not the, the, the legal view. But what we need to do is to uh, uh, include specifically in law that public accommodation includes religion, ideology, uh, and a few other things, party affiliation, things like that. Because that's what, the, that's what you know, public accommodation means. If you're, uh, public accommodation means you accommodate the public. Let's be literal. So if you accommodate the public, you have to be open to the public, and that means everybody. Okay? You can't discriminate. You can't pick and choose. 
Again, if somebody proves that they've destroyed your place or are an actual threat, you say, I'm not going to let them back in. Last time they're here, they wrecked the place. Oh, okay, that makes sense. You know. Anyway, so this article is originally from uh, today.com, uh, but I've had enough of it. So I'm going to play you some more things, and then I'll come back and talk about – try to record my break time, so I'm going to see if I can include that. Um, in my show notes so you know what's going on. Let me play you a Christmas greeting and a few other things that amuse me, you know, and let's see if we can, and then we'll get into my uh, my very interesting economic chat from uh, four years ago. It was maybe No, I think it's five years ago now with uh, Mark Thornton of the Mises Institute. So let me, let me, I might play some music. I might play some stuff. Who knows what I'm going to play? I've got, I got a bunch of stuff here. And so where is my, my Christmas? Let me scroll back up here for my Christmas greeting. I have a lot of sound uh, things, so this is why it takes a while to get to them. So the Christmas greeting I made uh, during the lockdown. So this would have been Christmas of 2020. So December of 2020, so two years ago. Yeah, so two years ago I made this. This is just as the, uh, the, the, the gene jab was coming out. This is just as mandates were happening. This is all the Capitol Hill police. You know, the Capitol staff were, were getting the jab. And uh, shortly thereafter, Brian Sitnik died uh, after January 6th, probably of a COVID jab. That's my guess. Uh, and this, but th- that is the spirit in which this was made. And in New York, the, 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 they canceled New Year's. So the, the ball didn't drop on New Year's. And that's uh, you get a reference in there, too. Anyway, enjoy my Christmas greeting and Merry Christmas to all. And uh, here we go. Hello, everyone. It's that time of year again. So here is just a friendly little message from your Action Radio revolutionaries. In preparation for Christmas and New Year's, we have just a few ideas and suggestions to make your holiday complete. Granted, these are times of adversity brought about by bureaucrats in what we affectionately call the leftist lockdown orgasmic power trip. But don't let a completely illegal, martial law style abdication and removal of your constitutional rights get in the way of a decent glass of eggnog with friends. After all, six-foot social distancing is a completely false concept for a virus that can linger in the air for hours in aerosol form, can be sneezed well over 200 feet, can travel through an entire 10-story building central air system in a couple of minutes, and goes through a mask like a mosquito through a chain-link fence. So, no matter what you do, everyone is getting exposed sometime. Leaving the healthy people alone accomplishes this in about 10 weeks. So, this should have been done the end of May. Speaking of masks, besides being a violation of your Fourth Amendment rights against seizure of your person, in this case, your face, without due process, the state can't make you wear a mask. So, go home if you're sick, but if not, go free face, as all real Americans are doing, and enjoy the Christmas season. Apparently, there is a deplorable lack of New Year's resolutions this year. Well, I have one. Hmm. To resist. Yeah, that's right. I'm going to restore and rejuvenate that inner rugged individual the left has tried so hard to put behind a mask and lockdown, and I'm going to resist. So, you find a creative way to resist, there's your revolution resolution. Remember, folks, those Twilight Zone episodes where people wore masks? They were supposed to make you think, not make you copy them. Family values should be emphasized this Christmas with the traditions that bind us together. Sit as close as you can at dinner. Remember those wet kisses from Grandma when you were a kid? Engage in spirited debates. Don't forget to use serving dishes where everyone sticks their own personal fork and spoon in, all in the interest of sharing. Remind everyone that closing churches violates the First Amendment. 
closing businesses without criminal convictions violates our Fifth Amendment right to life, liberty, and property, and closing schools denies our kids their right to an education. So, you may want to point that out to your governors and mayors this festive season so they understand their transgressions and can repent. I would have suggested you go to New York this year, but quite frankly, they don't have the balls to celebrate New Year's. (laughs) No, really, the ball isn't dropping. Maybe we should rename Times Square Tiananmen Square West. Remember that there are many great gifts you can share this Christmas, particularly AR-15s and AK-47s. Those tend to warm the heart. As we say at Action Radio, world peace through strength. Just remember that everything the government tells you is wrong. So if you want to avoid COVID, don't take the vaccine. Go to the beach instead. Get that sunshine and vitamin D. Stay away from home. Engage in commerce and business. Travel as much as you can. Work out at crowded gyms. Drive extensively, preferably with the windows open. Patronize businesses that are in open rebellion. And resist, resist, resist the doctor dictatorship. In closing, let me just say Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, and Happy Hanukkah. Muslims, you don't have a holiday at this time, so just go eat Chinese food on Christmas Eve and meet some really nice Jewish folks. Hey, they might be your neighbors. This is Greg Penglis for Action Radio. America. Looks like millions of you are in states where the governor dictator has said that food is essential, but God is not. Fortunately, we have a solution for you. We've combined your essential food shopping with a non-essential religious experience. Being in the same building and being completely intertwined, you can't do one without the other. Welcome to the New Normal Church and Grocery Store. Yes, the New Normal Church and Grocery Store is the first business of its kind to bring God conveniently into your food shopping aisle. 
Think of this as food for your body and food for your soul. No social distance or group size restrictions here. Upon entering the new normal church and grocery store, you will pick up your shopping cart. You can then choose from an optional mask with a Star of David, a cross, a crescent moon, a sun for you Shintos, a statue of Buddha, and for you agnostics, a question mark. Headsets are available to place sermons throughout your shopping experience. Some of the favorites include I'm Going to Heaven and You're Not, Die Infidel Die, Oi, What Not to Say During the Bris, and That Butterfly May Be Your Grandfather. To orient you to the store, the Kosher Jewish Deli is by the Western Wall. A simple shalom gets you service, but be prepared to haggle. For you Muslims, out of courtesy, we put the Halal Butcher by the Eastern Wall. Sharia store policies require the wearing of both a burqa and a mask, just to be safe. Protestants will find the Wonder Bread, Hot Dogs, and Steak in the Central Isles, where all the best-dressed customers can also be found. When you notice the smell of incense, you are nearing the Buddhist section, which is all vegetarian. For Catholics, communion is available in the bakery department by the wafers near the red wine section. Agnostics should go directly to customer service because you folks have no idea what you want anyway. Be sure to offer your confessional to the checker on the way out if you so choose. Please don't forget to first pull down the blind on the plexiglass screen. And if you require ministering, you can talk to your bagger as they push your groceries to your car because all our baggers are cross-trained in theology. The new normal church and grocery store, your combination alternatives to the separation of church by the state. the fun we have here <laughs> I, I can push buttons i can do this all day this is great so no callers nobody on chat nobody on skype nobody uh you know just me <laughs> so uh, hopefully i'll catch this on podcast well i expect most people to be busy um probably not gonna have a show tomorrow and uh you know so it's so uh, i would just maybe you know, if i feel like it but maybe not i have a lot of production stuff to do i have a lot of work i can do and so hopefully get a lot of things accomplished next week there'll be shorter shows you, you never know i mean this, this is all this is all, all on, on my, my whim anyway. But I want to get something on, on here on the podcast because this is um, fabulous. And it's fun to listen if you're listening live too. Mark Thornton, who was, did two unbelievable interviews uh, back at WBY. That was 1330, AM 1330 WBY, Northwest Florida's News and Talk Leader. And it's now formally <laughs> Northwest Florida's News and Talk Leader. Um, but they did, but uh, the guests I was able to get there. See, now, now I'm at the point where I was then. So now I'm able to uh, get some fabulous people from around the country like Roy Brunson. We've had David Stockman, Wendy Rogers, uh, Peter Navarro. We've had other just amazing guests on the show. But it's harder on a blog talk situation. We had uh, Maj Touré uh, from Black Guns Matter. We've had just, just incredible guests on the show. And as the show grows, it's, of course, it's easier to get some of these folks and, and you get some recognition. Uh, and as we are the world's only uh, at this time, and hopefully yeah, probably will be for a while, um, citizen legislature attached to a radio show, we have something unique for people. And I told Lloyd about that yesterday, and uh, Diane and I, uh, in talking to him, he's like, whoa, is this what you guys do? So I told him, I said, this, this is unlike any interview you've ever been on. And it is, because we have something unique to offer here. And we're going to keep doing it more and more and more. But a lot of what's necessary before you write the legislation is you have to get informed. And the way that you get informed is you get the, the greatest experts you can find to come on the show, talk to us, and then hopefully, if, if necessary or if, if they want to, uh, can work with us on the specific legislation we write or make comments on it uh, before it goes to uh, submission to a legislature, be it Congress, a state legislature, or, or local government. So that's how it works. 
So let me go over the website just, just briefly here, writeyourlaws.com. That's W-R-I-T-E-Y-O-U-R-L-A-W-S, writeyourlaws.com. The homepage, uh, it gives you all the, the directions, instructions. It also has a link to the show here at blogtalkradio.com slash citizenaction. But that's where you get an idea of, of what this is all about. It gives you a template, gives you a strategy, gives you kind of a, a way to, uh, to think about you know, putting your bill together. So that's, that's the instruction page of the homepage. The, if you click on the menu bar over to legislation, well, now, now we're getting down to business. And so the first part is proposing law. And I think I'm about to sneeze. I might have to mute myself here uh, for a minute, see if I can do it in time and, and beat, you know, my sneeze. Hang on. Nope, still here. Nothing worse than waiting for a sneeze when you're on the air live. <laughs> Hopefully I muted it, but it, we'll, we'll see anyway. So let me see if I make sure I'm still back. Yep, I'm back. So uh, uh, I had no idea what I was talking about. This is what a sneeze does. It clears your head, literally, of everything, of whatever you're, you're t- mentioning. So what we do here, uh, the research. Uh, the, oh, yeah, back to, back to the website. So uh, legislation is the second item on the menu bar of writeyourlaws.com. And then you drop down. The first section is propose a new law. And that's where you say, okay, this is, this is a bill that I want to write, and this is for everybody. Uh, and so you put your name, your email, which is confidential, but I need to be able to get in touch with you uh, in case uh, for, for a variety of reasons. The most important is to get you on the air to talk about your bill and work on it. So that's why we have emails. And besides, if, we, if you write something really disgusting, it might be, uh, I, I might uh, want to send you something as well. Uh, anyway, uh, so that's how that works. Uh, or I'll just, I'll just deny it. If it's a bad bill, I'm just going to kick it out. So I do look at these carefully. Uh, and consider, sometimes I don't post them for a few weeks while I'm thinking about it. Like, oh, well, that's interesting. You know, and sometimes I do it right away. It just it really depends. It's very arbitrary uh, depending on what you write. So you propose a new law. You put your name, your email, the title of your bill. And we like real titles. We don't like uh, you know, the Affordable Care Act uh, kind of titles you know, or, or, we, or the inflation reduction bill. The, the, the things that are just the opposite of what you're actually doing. We'd like your title to reflect what you're doing because we're, you know, we're kind of into honesty around here. Uh, and so you write your title, and then you write the. Then you have a couple of questions. You have to do one plus one, I think, or some simple math thing. And then you have to select citizen bill ideas. Okay. The, apparently, that's what you have to do on the website. So, you, so the, the all proposed the, the law that you're proposing can actually be posted somewhere. And so it goes to citizen bill ideas. Anyway, so uh, so you select that, and then it comes to me, and I go, hmm, this is interesting. Oh, then you write your bill. Then you write the content of your bill, and a bill should have in it uh, uh, three things. It should have an introduction or a rationale. Why are you doing this? Uh, it should have in it uh, the, old, the old law that you're trying to change. So you post the old bill, old, the old uh, code. You know, this is the language. And just be very specific. You don't have to do long things. You know, just the exact language that you're changing will go in the middle of the bill. And then the end of the bill is what your new language is. And now sometimes you're creating new law, in which case you wouldn't do that. And sometimes you're not even citing title and section because it's just an idea and you, and you don't know exactly how to do all that legal research and, and put the title and section. And, and select the law that you're changing and then put the new one in. Okay, that's more my job. But what I can do is get you on the air to work on it and teach you how to do it so that you can fix your bill and make it better. See, just because our bills are written, they don't, the first draft isn't it. That's only the beginning. It's, this is just like Congress, you know, just like the state legislatures. So what we do is we take your bill, put it in citizen bill ideas, and then we talk about it. And I take comments on it. So it's public. It's like a, committee, it's like a national committee hearing. So people around the country can kind of look at it and go, oh, that's interesting. What's in there? Hmm. That's kind of fun. Um, and then think, all right, well, well I'll just uh, 
you know, and then you, and then we all, and then once we reach a point where we think the bill is ready to go, so we're saying to ourselves, okay, it's, it's been it's been proposed, uh, it's been talked about, it's been commented, we put it through the, our legislative committee process, uh, which is the whole country, actually the whole world really, because anybody can comment. Then it goes to all proposed laws, and once it gets to all proposed laws, those are the ones that we're saying we want, and from there, anybody uh, can, you can share other bills too, uh, and because anything can be shared on the site, but you can. But those are the ones we really want to go out. So once it's in all proposed laws, that's in a state where it can be passed. That's in a state where we're minimal, minimal um, additions, subtractions, amendments would be made to those bills. Uh, and they should go right into law. That's what we're hoping anyway. So that's how it works. Now, there are further divisions. Uh, the website was never finished. We tragically lost our, uh, our webmaster, Eric Colley, when basically his hospital killed him. And I'll be blunt about that. You know, that's, um, that's what his wife says. And it's just, and I agree. You know, from everything I've heard, that's what it sounds like. So he, we never got to finish the website. It still works, but there's still more things to do to kind of fix up some odds and ends here. Anyway, so that's that. So that's how you post a bill. Once you post a bill, great. <laughs> you know, let's have at it. And uh, I've got some fabulous ideas. Uh, Amber, uh, our constitution reporter, uh, got on the show because she posted a bill. You know, it was a great bill that uh, people running for office and in office should take the uh, Constitution, uh, the, the immigration citizenship test to see if they know the Constitution. Isn't that a great idea? Uh, then she brought in Brianna, who is our government inquiry reporter. Uh, other folks have gotten on the shows. Uh, Pianki's written bills. Josie's written bills. Jonathan uh, has written bills. Um, many, many people have. Uh, my, my friend and, and uh, person I think killed by the COVID shot, Dr. Peter Pry, has a couple of bills. Um, Judy Mikevitz is working on a bill with a listener to ban advertising of medical products. We'll get back to that one, too. So a lot of this stuff happens. It's fascinating what goes on here. This is a laboratory. This is the laboratory of change. This is the, labor- the revolution laboratory. The, maybe let me call it the peaceful revolution laboratory. This is where we create the, the peaceful revolution. All right, so let me go play um, Mark's second interview. And you really don't have to listen to the first one. They're separate. They're different. We cover different topics. But if you go back and, and listen to... Uh, the previous show with Mark Thornton where I played his first interview. His first interview was July 10th. Uh, wait a minute. That couldn't. Uh... Yeah, oh yeah, July of 2017. I was thinking July 10th of 2018 was, was uh, three days before I was fired, <laughs> you know, for, for doing action radio. No, so this has been 2017. So, so Mark's, Mark Thornton, Mises, I can't talk this morning. Mark Thornton, Mises Institute. Uh, his first interview was July 10th of 2017. His second one was a month later, uh, maybe six weeks later, uh, August 28th of 2017. And so we got him two close interviews. And I haven't heard from him, so i got to get back in touch and see if I can get him back on the show. But uh, just listen to, to the second one. And, again, there's some callers. And I'd love to have more callers to the show here. But most people still listen by podcast. You're not listening live, and you can't call into a podcast. So if you want to call into the show or a message or things like that, please do. I'd love to hear from more people. So let me play this interview, and it's about 43 minutes and worth every bit of it. I've taken out the, the news breaks. I've taken out the, the commercials for the most part. <laughs> yeah, yeah I've taken, And I've taken out uh, – I haven't – but you'll still hear phone numbers. You'll still hear WBY and the phone number there. Just remember, this is Action Radio. This is um, December 22nd, you know, the eve of Christmas Eve Eve. <laughs> this is where we are. Um, and this is uh, 2022, and of course, but uh, this interview is from back from August 28th of 2017, and so our number, 215-383-3832, our website, blogtalkradio.com slash citizen, our, our bill site, writeyourlaws.com, that's the current information. Anything else you hear is from a previous time, and I'll be back. <laughs> 
Sometimes we get lucky. This is one of those times. I want to introduce one of my favorite uh, guests of all time. This is Mark Thornton from the Mises Institute. He's a senior fellow there. He knows economics and explains it the way nobody else can. What's that? We got extra music? Oh, we got an extra theme. That's okay. Anyway, let me bring him on right now. Good morning, Mark. Hey, good morning, Greg. Great, great to be with you. Well, thanks so much for joining me again. So I promised you I was going to get a podcast, and we should have those fairly soon of your first one. I want to kind of group them together in a series once I uh, get uh, get a few more uh, chats from you. But it's really great to have you on, um, especially at this time. If you can tell me a bit about Mises, then I want to get into um, what's happening, the economic in- impact of, uh, of Hurricane Harvey. But if you can tell folks what, a little bit about the Mises Institute first. Well, the Mises Institute is located in Auburn, Alabama, and we are a nonprofit economic education foundation. And uh, we, you know, try to address the entire population uh, with college students, graduate students, professors, and the, just the regular out there population to get them more informed about economics and about the economy and about what's really going on in the economic system. And uh, so. I encourage all of your listeners to go to our website, M-I-S-E-S.org, and check it out. It's the world's largest economic webpage, and it's all written for the general population. It's not a bunch of equations like most economists uh, are concerned about. Yeah, it's funny you should say that because when I had Dr. Walter Williams on, he said the same thing. There's too much math. People don't know what they're doing. They're not analyzing the culture, the, you know, all the effects of things that are going on in society. There's more to economics than just formulas. Absolutely, and Walter Williams is an excellent economist, uh, maybe one of the best out there, and certainly one of the more influential uh, economists as well. Yeah, yeah. He was a great interview. He'd only stay 20 minutes, though, but uh, this is why I'm so glad to have you. Listen, you explain things the way nobody else does, and that's why I like to have you on. So let's talk about um, Harvey for a bit, because we're hearing that uh, oil supplies are interrupted. There's a lot of refining capacity that's going to be down. The markets are up. They're, they're buying more. What does all this mean? So what is, what, is Harvey, what is Harvey doing to our economy? Well, you know, with things like uh, Hurricane Harvey or Katrina, you know, things like that, you'll inevitably see – uh, once the dust settles, you'll see economists coming up and saying, well, what a great thing this is because it's going to create all these new jobs. <laughs> yeah, uh, great thing, right. You know, <laughs> we, we look at it entirely different. We look at something like uh, Hurricane Harvey as destruction. You're, yeah. you're destroying wealth. You're destroying value. Obviously, tens of thousands of people are being adversely affected, putting, put in harm's way. And it's just an awful, deplorable uh, situation there, and uh, you know, it's um, it's really beyond the pale. But it's not a gain to the economy. It doesn't create jobs. It destroys, and uh, we should all be concerned about those things. Yeah, and this is the thing too. They're talking about, hey, the markets are up, futures are up, contracts are up. This is great. This is going to help people. What are they talking about with all that? Well, obviously, um, you know, hurricane hitting Houston, uh, Houston. Um, is one of the world's major oil refinery sites. Uh, and I think one-third of all oil in the United States is processed uh, in the Houston area. And so naturally this is going to rattle markets. Uh, market re- the market responds to uh, situations such as this where there's very much a heightened risk, where there's a 
definite possibility where you're cutting off supply. And uh, under those circumstances, you're going to see markets move higher right. uh, for oil. Uh, and actually, it's the the market for gasoline is is moving much higher, and the but the market for unprocessed oil is uh, is actually not moving as much. So, you know, the markets respond uh, to to everything. Uh, everything in the entire economy is relevant in uh, national prices for oil, gas, cotton, bananas, everything. Yeah. And so, naturally, something like this that is uh, directly impacting uh, the oil processing uh, and refining uh, industry is going to have uh, significant effects uh, on markets. Well, it's interesting because um, there's a lag time. I mean, the oil that we have now and the petroleum and the gasoline, this was refined a while ago. Do you know about what the lag time is between when it's refined, when it gets here, and how much supply, how much time it takes before the we run out of gasoline that was produced before the hurricane? No, I don't. Uh, okay. I do know that uh, we had a pipeline, a gasoline pipeline here in Alabama, uh-huh. unexpectedly explode uh, back about a year and a half ago, hmm. and we were without gasoline in, in a matter of uh, like 36 hours. Wow! So it, it, you know, the the amount of products on the shelf or in the gas station tank is relatively small relative to the demand we get if you notice in your local economy you'll be getting daily uh, deliveries of things like gasoline bread and so the amount even though the, the like the grocery stores look like they're super packed with everything uh, that can quickly uh, those inventories at the local level can quickly uh, dry up very fast uh, especially if there's a rush uh, you know, once everybody knows about the problem, they, they go to the stores and they right. buy up this, whatever they can. And so you have an increased demand and a restricted supply. And, and so it, yeah. you, you end up with nothing. And, and so that's why we always need to be prepared. Uh, you, should, you should be prepared as if there is going to be a natural disaster uh, in, the, in the near-term future. And uh, make sure you're prepared like a Boy Scout would be. Yeah. We hear about futures contracts, and uh, I know a little bit about this, but I think a lot of people aren't, aren't as familiar, where they're, they're buying gasoline like six months in advance trying to guess the price of it, and an event like this changed that. Can you, do you know about options and commodities and things that you could explain you know, to folks how this works a little bit? Well, I'm not an expert in this area. You I, don't have to be. I'm just, I've, just general I've, knowledge. Uh, I've uh, participated in those markets a little bit myself, but basically... Uh, there are contractual re, uh, arrangements. So, you know, I can go to the gas station and buy gasoline directly mm-hmm. and put it in my car, but the gas station itself can buy, or the chain of gas stations can go out and buy, uh, you know, so many millions of gallons uh, for October right. or November or December, and very often they want to hedge their bets, and so they might buy some of their uh, inventory in the futures market at a certain price, and they might buy the rest of their inventory on the spot market, so that they, you know, they have some knowledge in advance mm-hmm. of what their uh, wholesale price is going to be. So you can buy it out in the future, or you can buy it on the spot market. And everybody, of course, all suppliers and and all retail are always looking to uh, 
get the best price. Uh, that's one of the most important things. Once you've committed uh, to buying inventory, uh, you don't know where the market's going to go. Mm. It could go higher, it could go lower, uh, and uh, the entrepreneur is uh, left holding the proverbial bag. And so that's a very important market where entrepreneurs can try to reduce their exposure to market changes in prices. Yeah, I was thinking about someone that might have bought a futures contract six months ago, knowing nothing that this would have happened. So they have their August price of, of however many millions of gallons they bought. They're still, because they bought it in a futures contract, the, the, the supplier still has to honor that at the price that they contracted for six months ago, right? That's correct, yeah. That, that's, the, that's the beauty of the futures market is it's a contractual way right. of trying to hedge your uh, exposure to market risks. Okay. So you may pay a little bit more than you think you might, uh, but then when something like this happens, it actually works in your favor. That's correct. Yeah, interesting. Um, Keystone Pipeline and infrastructure. You know, the President Obama didn't want anything to do with Keystone, but I'm thinking if we'd had this years ago in other pipelines, would they have been able to maybe move the refining to other areas of the country more quickly? Um, do you know about infrastructure stuff on this? Yes, and, you know, th that that is a problem uh, in our oil industry is that the government uh, has interventions uh, in our markets with respect to refining. We haven't added any um, new refineries uh, in the United States in decades. Oh, really? Because of uh, federal regulations. Now, what they do do, of course, is they take existing refineries and they try to boost the capacity at those sites. Huh. Uh, but we haven't been able to add any new sites because of these, the regulations. And, of, of course, nobody wants an oil refinery uh, in their backyard. So it's, it's a very difficult situation, and uh, it creates bottlenecks uh, in the market for oil and oil-refined products. Um, and the Keystone Pipeline was an attempt to integrate the new oil shale uh, or shale oil mm -hmm. Uh, and uh, other new sources of energy in northern part of the country to integrate that in with Houston and Louisiana refinery um, industries. Yeah. I would think that with the newer technology, that wouldn't be such a big problem to have the newer refineries compared to, say, building one 50 years ago. Um, but people still don't want them. Is, it, you know, is there any reason to, to think that refineries are, are tossing off a lot of pollution? I mean, they have, to, they have standards they have to meet. Oh, yes. I mean, the, the oil refineries are increasingly efficient and therefore increasingly um, environmentally friendly. Yeah. Um, you know, refineries um, have always wanted to, you know, not pollute. They'd rather not pollute and be able to use 100% of that raw uh, oil into all the various products. Uh, that was true of the coal industry as well. We see that today hmm. in China where they use a lot of coal, and, uh, of course, they have a lot of environmental pollution, but the uh, people who are burning coal want to do it increasingly more efficiently to get more, uh, more energy out of every ton of coal. And as a consequence, uh, the pollution levels uh, have improved or c continue to improve, uh, you know, in China, just as we saw that happened 100 to 150 years ago in Pennsylvania. Interesting. 
Um, we're going to take a little break, but before we go, I want to know if there's anything else you want to add to uh, you know, our, our discussion here of energy and the economy uh, with regard to the hurricane or anything else that's happening. Well, you know, my hearts and prayers um, are mostly, I'm, you know, I'm mostly concerned about the human yeah. element right now. And uh, I've got friends, I've got relatives in the affected area. Oh, wow, I'm sorry. And it, it, so it's, uh, I think we need to be concerned about that, do what we can, uh, comfort them if possible. Um, the market for oil and all that stuff will work itself out. Mm-hmm. And uh, those, the, those refining resources were supposedly um, able to, uh, you know, withstand uh, hurricane weather. Hmm. And so I think once we get the, the people problem solved and get the people back to work, I think we'll be okay with respect to, uh, you know, energy, oil, and gas. Yeah, I don't want folks to think that we're not covering that. I talked about that the first couple of hours. We were sure. going over various things. But I wanted to, because you're, you know, economics is what you know. I wanted to come <laughs> and deal with those issues. Yeah. And this is why it's just very, you know, fortuitous that we had you on at this time. When we come back, I want to get into this whole central banker thing that nobody's talking about that I think is going to be really interesting. And if you have questions out there, please ask us here. You've got a rare chance to talk to someone that really knows economics. So all those questions you've never been able to uh, understand or explain or things you hear in the news, now's the time to call us at 62. 3-13-30. We have Mark Thornton from the Mises Institute, and we'll be right back. any economic themes? <laughs> you never know what Adolf's going to bring us, so it's just kind of interesting. i got uh, Mark Thornton, uh, who I'm going to bring back on right now. Um, Mark Thornton is a is, uh, senior fellow at the Mises Institute, and the reason I brought him on is the question I'm, I'm about to ask right now. So I'm always interested in what the news is talking about, but I'm even more interested in what the news is not talking about. And what they're not talking about is this big um, convention of central bankers that's going on in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. They're hiding in this mountain retreat, which makes me suspicious. Uh, Bloomberg uh, Investment Report has talked about what the, you know, the fact that this convention is going on, but they're not saying what they're doing. And so I want to see if we can uh, get into this a little bit, because the big conference, the big problem they're having is that inflation isn't high enough. Now, that to me isn't a problem. <laughs> I, don't, you know, I don't see inflation as a good thing, but this is what they're discussing here. And nobody's talking about this. No one's, you know, no one's getting up in arms. They're not going on the street, and, and, and no one's interviewing people saying, well, the central bankers think that inflation isn't high enough. What do you think? So let's, let's start at the beginning, and then we'll see if we can work this way through this. So what exactly, Mark, is a central bank and a central banker? Well, the central bank is the federal government's uh, regulatory body uh, that oversees banks. Now, of course, we have lots of bank regulators at the federal level and at state level, um, but the Federal Reserve, mm-hmm. which was organized in 1913 by Congress, uh, is the overarching controller of the money supply and also interest rates. They control the interest rates that banks charge other banks for short-term deposits, and that interest rate then influences all of the other interest rates uh, on things like home mortgages, uh, auto loans, business loans. All of that is indirectly controlled by the Federal Reserve 
by its power to control the interest rate that banks charge other banks for short-term deposits, or excuse me, short-term loans. That would be the prime rate we're talking about? No, the, the prime rate is, uh, that's directly influenced by what's called the federal uh, funds rate. Oh, uh, okay. That's what yeah, I and, uh, and so, you know, the amount of, see, banks have to hold a certain amount of deposits mm-hmm. uh, in the bank, and so if, they, if they're not at that level, then they have to borrow money from other banks in, in terms of short-term loans. But, of course, the purpose of banks, as you suggest, mm-hmm. is to finance uh, business inventory and expansion, construction, uh, so on and so forth, and that's the prime rate, the, the rate that banks okay. charge their very best uh, customers in terms of uh, the risk that they have on their loans. Yeah. Now, we have kind of a, a, a checkered history of central banks in this country. They've, they've been formed. They've been gotten rid of. Um, can you talk a little bit about the history of that, and then we'll get into why we actually have one of these things? Sure. Um, so there's been various phases of central banks in the United States. There was the first uh, Bank of the United States, uh, which, you know, it ended up creating uh, inflation and creating business cycles. And so politically, it was done away with in the early 19th century. Okay. And then there was the second Bank of the United States, which did, basically did the same thing and was done away with uh, by Andrew Jackson in the 1830s. And then once we hit the American Civil War, the federal government, uh, of course, under Republican Northern control, uh, passed uh, the National Banking Acts in the 1860s, and the the National Banking Acts controlled banking in a regulatory fashion from the 1860s until 1913, and it was uh, actually a very destabilizing system. Uh, of course, we were on the gold standard throughout okay. this entire period, but uh, in, from 1860 to 1913, there was a lot of banking panics because of the regulatory um, uh, interventions in the banking system, and that's when we—that's uh, when we—they uh, passed the Federal Reserve Act in 1913, creating this uh, central bank, much like the Bank of England or the European Central Bank in modern times, the Bank of Japan, so forth. Uh, all major nations now have central banks, and uh, those central banks have become a key influencer of economies across the globe. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, they're still destabilizing. I mean, we already we had the Federal Reserve System in 1913. Uh, we still had the Great Depression, though. So right, yeah. There, there's no there's no guarantee that uh, central banks are going to properly regulate these markets. And as a matter of fact, experience uh, shows that they are almost inevitably going to create economic havoc uh, in the economy eventually. That's why I raised the question, because I, I, I don't know the exact history, but I've known this for, for a while, that we've tried this a couple of times. It's been gotten rid of. They say they're going to come in and uh, you know, get rid of the business cycles and the boom and the bust times, and they'll keep everything nice and smooth and, and developing you know, at a steady rate, and growth will be steady, and everybody's going to be happy. And they end up doing just the opposite. So I have to wonder if this isn't by design that the governments want to create these central banks simply because they cause these boom and bust 
uh, cycles, and, and who might be benefiting from that? Right. The uh, central bankers always want you to think that markets can't possibly control money and banking, and that if not for them, you know, the world would crumble um, as we speak. Uh, the truth is, is that they're in the business basically of printing up money okay. and causing price inflation in the economy. It's uh, you can well imagine. Just put yourself in the position of a central banker who's able to print up as much money as they want. Well, that's a position that everybody would like to have. It's you know, it's called counterfeiting counter- though. If anybody else does it, yeah, <laughs> it's a great counterfeiting scheme of yeah. you know of all time. And, and basically, they. Uh, successfully pretend that they're not the source of the problem, but they're the source of the cure uh, of the problem and uh, that we can't possibly do without them. Yeah. But the truth is is that the, le- the less they do, the less control over interest rates they have, the less money printing that they do, the better off everybody else is in the economy. Yeah, I, I remember there was, there was a couple of instances where we had very quick um, recessions that were very, very, uh, I mean, there were strong recessions, and the government did nothing. I think during the, the Coolidge um, Harding days, they, they did very little. The, the economy recovered in a couple of years, and things were fine. But then when Roosevelt came along with his depression, um, they actually made it far worse, and all the policies they did extended it for 12 years, whereas if the government had done nothing, it might have been over in like two or three. That's correct. In 1920, um, the U.S. went into a recession it was a kind of a panic situation, uh, and Harding didn't do anything. Uh, he uh, actually uh, had the Federal Reserve raise interest rates, uh, and they cut government spending and balanced the budget. And what a concept. <laughs> one year. Yeah. So it was supposed to be a depression, but we quickly came out of that, the depression of 1920, 1921, mm-hmm. was over and done with. And if you lived in rural areas or including Pensacola, you might not even really, um, you know, feel the impact of that depression before it was already over. Uh, We've had experience in uh, the 1930s during the Great Depression. Mm -hmm. Uh, We had similar experiences in the United States in the 1970s to 1982, uh, and then in Japan since 1990 and in the United States since 2008, when the government and the central bank actively try to uh, shut down an economic depression, what they end up doing is prolonging it. So you really need um, to, you know, when the economy goes into a depression, it needs to clean out all of the bad lending, all of the bad loans, all of the bad business ventures and structures, um, and, and turn them over. And and in the 1930s uh, and in today, uh, the Federal Reserve is fighting uh, the economic crisis, and they end up prolonging it almost indefinitely uh, with low interest rates, trying to save existing businesses and existing jobs um, that are not uh, profitable going forward and allowing resources to find out their most valuable uses in the economy. And right now, uh, you know, that's what the Federal Reserve has been up to, fighting this economic crisis. And what they end up doing is just simply prolonging it. And yeah. 
And my assumption is always that, considering how long we've had central banks, that what they're doing is not an accident, it's by design, and that somebody's going to benefit from it. Uh, and that's why every bank, every person that you mentioned, the Central Bank of Japan, Central Bank of England, Central Bank of, of the European Union, our Federal Reserve, they're all meeting in Jackson Hole. <laughs> So, and my, you know, I, I want to get to the callers, but this, we're going to get to why in just a little bit. Let's get to Brad right now. Brad, Brad, you had a question? Yeah, I'd like uh, the uh, uh, audience to hear about our debt-based economy and how that when they print the money, they never print the money for the interest. Therefore, when the uh, loans are called in or the money finally finds its home, the interest is still out there with no backing, and it's, it's a uh, perpetuating disaster, and that's why the, uh, I believe, like the uh, deficits and all are, are, are out of control because of this. Is that the Keynesian uh, uh, economy where they print the money and the debt is based on, uh, uh, you know, there's never enough money to pay the interest. If they keep, even if they keep printing money, there's never any money to pay the interest. Uh, so speak about the uh, debt-based. Yeah, I wasn't going to get into this now, but it's, it's a good time to do it because we've got the national debt uh, debt ceiling debate coming up and the budgets and interest. And, yeah, Mark, yeah, go so for Brad, it. That's, Brad, that's an excellent question. Yeah. That's the flip side of, of monetary policy is that easy monetary policy and low interest rates allow the government to borrow money at these ridiculously low interest rates. Uh, it keeps their interest expense down. Um, and makes it much easier for them to just borrow money. And, of course, we've been borrowing, on average, about a trillion dollars uh, every year since the economic crisis. And then, of course, we have, you know, trillions uh, of government uh, borrowing before that uh, economic crisis started in 2008. So the federal government has $20 trillion in debt. Uh, they have to pay interest on that. They have to roll over uh, those bonds and notes uh, as they come due. And, of course, with the Federal Reserve keeping interest rates very low, uh, that makes it so much easier to pay off that interest. I think right now we're four or $500 billion uh, in interest payments every year. If we allowed interest rates, and this is the key, if we allowed interest rates to go to market levels, mm -hmm. uh, the interest on the national debt, would be much, much higher, two to three times uh, higher than what it is right now. And so, you know, the reason we have a central bank and the reason they control interest rates is that, so that politicians find it easier uh, to borrow money, to pay the interest. Um, and, of course, as uh, price inflation works its way through the economy, that reduces the real burden uh, of the national debt uh, because they're getting to pay it off with devalued dollars. And so that's the whole system. If you look at the whole system together, uh, that's the reason ultimately why we have uh, a central bank. It's not uh, to regulate interest rates. It's not to regulate the money supply and, and all that nonsense. Uh, it's just basically in a very elaborate scheme mm -hmm. uh, so that politicians can spend more uh, than they tax. And uh, that keeps them, in the short run, in favor with uh, most of the population, the people who are uh, working for the government, government contractors, debtors out there in the economy, banks, Wall Street. Uh, those are the primary benef 
beneficiaries uh, of this elaborate scheme. Yeah, we got to take a break, and then when we come back, uh, we're going to get to Chuck. So Chuck, just hang on for a little bit. Um, I want to get into this whole idea of inflation, what it is exactly, and who benefits, and and how if. Um, Inflation is three percent, and we're you know making one percent our savings. Is that two percent transferred to the banks somehow? I mean, how do how do how do these banks make money from us from inflation? I want to get into that when we come back. Eight thirty-seven. Greg Penglis here with Mark Thornton from uh, the Mises Institute. It's thirteen thirty WEBY. We'll be back. Footloose. <laughs> yeah, I know who's footloose. Are those uh, bankers in Jackson Hole, Wyoming? Um, I want to bring Mark right back on because I want to get right to this question. The, the, my biggest question of the day is, is how does the mechanism work? How do these bankers make money, transfer our wealth by using inflation? I, I can't explain it. I don't understand how it works. Can you help me out, Mark? Sure thing, Greg. Um, well, basically, I mean, it's, it's not all that complicated. Okay. But, you know, if the Federal Reserve is keeping interest rates very low, they're keeping those interest rates low for the banks themselves because the interest rate that they control is the interest rate that banks charge other banks uh, for short-term loans. And so if they keep that rate low, then it's, it's uh, helping the supply side of banks. It's basically, you know, if, uh, if we looked at it in a different market and – the federal government controlled the price of flour, mm-hmm. uh, you know, for making bread and stuff. If they if they reduced the price of flour to three cents a ton or mm-hmm. three cents a pound, even uh, well, if you're in the if you're in the uh, baking industry making cooks uh, cookies and and bread and so forth, well, that's going to be a it's going to increase your profit. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, if that's essentially what the Federal Reserve is doing is controlling uh, the, the basic of money. input side of, of the bank's economy. And so it, it, uh, it reduces interest rates all over the economy, but the most important beneficiary is the people who get the money first, and that's the banks. Uh, we don't get the money first. Okay. We get the money maybe a year from now, two years from now. It starts circulating. Uh, but by that time, prices of goods and uh, our and services have increased. And so we get the money, but we're paying higher prices. So we don't benefit from that. But the banks who get the money at the very first uh, part of this process and, and then start making additional loans as a result – uh, that's how they are the major beneficiaries of this process. Yeah, I want to go to Chuck, but I still want to find out how they make, uh, why they manipulate inflation. We'll get to that in a little bit. Chuck, thanks for holding on. I appreciate it. Go ahead. Hey, uh, I'm just about out of time, but my 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 question and comment would be: I, I I used to years ago study this a little bit. Of course, I'm not an economist; I'm a layman. But uh, one key element that I had seen was the, uh, of course, the the interest on any of the bonds that are bought is given back to the Treasury, and that's their selling point that we're not making no money on you because we're buying bonds, but whatever that percent interest is, we're actually giving it back to the Treasury to keep the money flowing. There is one other part in this uh, booklet that they, they produce called Modern Money Mechanics that refers to 
the primary dealers, which are the big, big banks that actually sell bonds and stuff, uh, Goldman Sachs, uh, Citi, uh, Wells Fargo, those type of banks that are uh, the top echelon, uh, maybe even have ownership in the Federal Reserve, that they get 6% on their excess reserves. So I'm thinking, okay, if somebody's got an opportunity to loan money, if you've got excess reserves and you're looking to loan the money, say, and in this market here, to somebody at, you know, you're only going to get, say, 3 or 4% on it, why would you bother to loan it when you can hold on to it and get paid from the Federal Reserve 6% on your excess reserves, which here again goes back to spending more money into the coffers of the, uh, you know, the, the banks that we're talking about that are taking the wealth away. So I'd like to hear a comment on the uh, the 6% paid on the excess reserves. So that's yeah, never this is really that. technical. You lost me a while ago, so I'm going to let Mark yeah, take this one. Well, Go ahead, Mark. Let's, let's break that down, Greg. Um, when the, the way the Federal Reserve controls interest rates is it buys government bonds. Okay. Okay, so it, it, if it buys government bonds, it increases the price of those bonds and reduces the interest rate. And so the Federal Reserve has trillions of dollars in assets right now. Like 4.5 trillion. I remember reading this. They've got as much money as the entire federal budget. Yeah, they, they, they've been buying up government debt like crazy. Uh-huh. Uh, and they've also expanded their asset base into uh, mortgages. And so they have all these assets, which there are they are earning interest on. And uh, so they have a couple hundred billion dollars in income. And so in terms of spending, uh, they can spend as much money as they want, uh, like lavish uh, symposiums in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. On their, they, their buds, their, their worldwide friends are there, too. What is going on there? Well, they've got money to burn. Oh, Literally, gosh. they've got money to burn. Yeah. And so they, they spend all this money, and yet they still have roughly, I'd say, $100 billion of excess income. And that does go back to the Treasury. The Treasury gets the net income of the Federal Reserve, and that could be positive or negative, but it's always been positive uh, so far. The other thing they're doing, the caller correctly points out, is uh, that uh, banks now have an enormous amount of excess reserves, money that they don't have to hold, uh, money that they could lend out to businesses and customers, but instead, they're leaving those excess reserves, and they're, in effect, lending it to the Federal Reserve uh, because the Federal Reserve is paying – it's not 6%. It's uh, roughly one and one-quarter percent uh, to banks uh, because the Fed, for whatever reason, doesn't want banks lending out all those excess reserves, uh, which is another curious uh, policy of, of, of the Federal Reserve – you know, they they whine about, you know, the economy not being strong enough, yeah. and yet they're putting the brakes on banks from lending out all of their excess reserves. It's, they're acting like a private company in their own best interest. This is why I'm worried about them. Why do we need a Federal Reserve if we have a Treasury? Well, that's a good – that's a very good question. I mean, the caller also pointed out that um, – you know, that there's primary dealers like Goldman Sachs mm-hmm. uh, and, and all the other big banks in New York. Uh, uh, they're the ones that buy the government bonds from the Treasury. Uh-huh. Uh, they buy them first, 
and and then resell them and uh and so you know that's a that, that's a great spot to be in because you're you're guaranteed a cut uh of all that government debt as you know as you provide the selling services for the US treasury uh you also provide uh, additional revenue uh for your bank and so it's a very cozy spot it's really unnecessary i mean as you said the treasury could just directly uh sell yeah. the bonds um into the economy but uh the institutional arrangement is uh, very favorable to a small number of these primary dealers. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> so why are the central bankers of Japan and Canada and the Fed and Europe and England because of Brexit, why are they all meeting Jackson Hole and why do they want to raise inflation? Well, they've been doing this for since the 1970s. Uh, and it's interesting. Uh, they get together. and It's become an increasingly important uh, symposium for the central bankers and their leading economists to try to work through some of the uh, issues that they're uh, facing and some of the issues that are looming in the future. And so very often uh, new policy uh, mechanisms, uh, the ideas for them are first floated uh, here in the Jackson Hole, Wyoming uh, Symposium, which is put on by the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City. Yeah, You know, in the 1970s, uh, late 1970s, uh, Price inflation was rampant in the economy, right. and that's when uh, central banks started inflation targeting because inflation was so high, they would set a target down roughly 2%, and, uh, and so they would have to have a restrictive monetary policy in order to get those prices to come down. Well, in today's context, it's just the opposite. Prices are coming down. Uh, as the world economy expands and the central banks think they're not getting enough price inflation, uh, that we're not hitting the target, but it was meant to bring down interest rates yeah. uh, because of price inflation. And now they're trying to push up uh, interest rates through more uh, price inflation, and they're just not getting it, and they don't know why, and they're very uh, frustrated uh, as a result of their failure to and I agree with you. That's ridiculous. Yeah, and uh, I don't care that they don't care, that they want price inflation to go. I want prices to come down. That's a good thing. Yeah, it's, it's like what's good for us is bad for them, and what's good for them is bad for us. We're going to take a break, Carl. Hang on just for a bit. I'm going to get you as soon as we come back. But we have to do this, and then I'll be back in just a little bit here at 1330 WBY Northwest Florida's Talk Radio. We all work hard for our money, except the central bankers. They didn't flip for their money. Unbelievable what these people are doing. Yeah, so uh, the, the whole idea, uh, why isn't this national news that these people are coming here specifically to raise our prices and raise inflation? I don't know. Let me get to Carl right away. He's been waiting long enough. Carl, go ahead. Hey, I know we're running short on time, so yes, I'll that's okay. cut it down as quick as I can. Uh, this topic to me is uh, key. Uh, when you're talking about inflation, taxes, debt, interest, it, those seem to see, be ingrained programs to sap the wealth out of the masses of America. And I've studied this for a while, and I came across this topic called extraction economies. And I believe we live in a designed extraction economy. Now, I don't know that it was the original intent, 
but that's what it's become. And so I, uh, Hamilton was the father of debt. He insisted on our national government assuming debt. I'm just wondering what that reason was. If you have any uh, feelings on this, I, I, I'll let you talk instead of me talking for the rest of the show. Appreciate your question, Carl. Good question. Yeah, it's another great Thank question, and, and that's exactly what it is. I mean, this is a system of transferring wealth and obviously controlling the money supply and controlling interest rates. Uh, you're giving a subsidy to capital, you know, to banks to Wall Street, to the capital side of the economy, you're giving, you know, a reduced price of their primary input. Now, all of this comes at the expense of labor, basically. If you group all of the rest of us together, we're essentially the labor force. We don't get access to that subsidized interest rates. Uh, we end up paying um, higher prices uh, as the money circulates through the economy. We end up paying higher prices and uh you know and so it is it's a giant extraction uh scheme they even refer to it as as a, a group of policies that don't make any sense individually but taken all together the monetary policy the fiscal policy um is a system of financial repression and that's basically where capital is getting these ultra low interest rates and a labor is not getting any of the gains, and we're not, we can't earn interest on our savings. I think the interest rate on my savings account is like 0.01 of 1%. Uh, and so we're left behind as a result, and the grand effect is a transfer of wealth and resources from labor and the population to capital and the banks. And, uh, and so that's how the system functions uh, today, uh, it is especially noteworthy today uh, that because of the extreme monetary policy that they've been following for the last 10 years and longer, uh, it means that uh, the median family income in the United States has actually been declining, uh, whereas the typical historical trend in the United States and other market economies has always been toward increasing average family income. And uh, the last 10 to 15 years, uh, that statistic is, is noteworthy and it's declined for the first time. And basically we think at the Mises Institute, this is the major, major issue, which is why we support the reinstitution of a gold standard, because the American people became economically more equal under the gold standard, and since 1971, uh, there's been increasing inequality in the United States. As the wealthy people get wealthier and the labor f um, force is taking home a smaller and smaller paycheck when you adjust it uh, for inflation out there. In the we got to pick this. Radio, dedicated to fixing everything. Yeah, that's kind of how it ended at WBY. When things ended, they just ended. <laughs> this is what makes it uh, uh, pretty crazy. So, uh, yeah. Um, but uh, back to present day here. So that was back in 2017. It was a fascinating interview. And see, I don't mind playing these older interviews because nothing's changed. 
you know, the same problems are there that were there then are there today. The same central bankers, is, if anything, things have gotten worse. The debt is bigger. The spending is bigger. The, the World Economic Forum and uh, the Davos Group and Klaus Schwab are bigger. You know, everything's gotten bigger. Um, and so it's, it's a whole different thing. Uh, I got to meet myself. <laughs> no, I think we're okay. Um, nothing worse than sneezing on your microphone. <laughs> I'm trying to avoid that. Anyway, but uh, yeah, so I've, I've got a bit of a cold. Now, everybody does. It's going to be freezing here in a couple of days. I mean, Friday, is, the temperature is dropping. Uh, Saturday and Sunday, it's not going to be 20 degrees for a high. I mean, it's going to be absolutely insane. Well, maybe not quite that, but it's, it's going to be really cold. Uh, and so maybe, uh, I don't know, 30, something like that. But we'll see. It, 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 you know, they predict a few days ahead of time. They don't know for sure. The only thing we do know is it's going to get really, you know, cold around here. So Christmas Day is going to be freezing. So we might get a white Christmas. It'd be kind of interesting to go out and see some snow on the ground. But uh, I won't be broadcasting anyway. Tomorrow, probably not. Probably won't do a show tomorrow. I think I'll take it off, it being Christmas Eve Eve. Uh, and then, uh, of course, Monday um, is – be, I should be back Monday. But uh, I don't know. It's the week before Christmas and New Year. So it just depends on who wants to talk, what's going on, what kind of news. And uh, I think I'll do a flurry of uh, uh, work on the show. And that would be uh, many of the, the, the sound things that I like to do and uh, see, what we can, uh, see what we can get going. So I have a little musical interlude for you. Then I have a couple more articles, and then I'll probably do it for today. So it's a, let's get in a little mellow mood. Let's get you a little jazz here. This would uh, keep you going for, uh, for a few minutes. And then I will be back.
You know, there are a few things more fun than uh, playing tuba in a Dixieland jazz band. Uh, I've had the pleasure of, of doing that many times. And, uh, you know, I used to have a big old tuba. Uh, unfortunately, I had to sell it for uh, different circumstances. But I might have to get another one. But they're expensive now. But uh, wouldn't, don't be surprised if you hear some, some live tuba <laughs> coming out here uh, in the show at some point. Okay, back to this. So I send the the uh, news folks down to the newsroom, and we'll see if we can get some. Uh, I got a couple of stories I want to cover uh, before we go, but uh, I got Pianki coming here. So let's uh, let's race down to Teletype and see what's happening. All right. So I got my news stories. I'm all set to go for the last little bit of the show today. But uh, Pianki's on the line, so let me check in and see what's going on. Good morning, sir. It's been a busy week for us here. Yeah, very busy. That's uh, that's good. That's, it helps uh, bring down inflation. But I like the <laughs> conversation with uh, your economist. Mm-hmm. Every time I hear him, it's I uh, it's called like E. F. Hutton talking in the room. Yeah, when E. F. Hutton talks, people listen. Is that the one? Yes. Do you know where that came from? You want to hear a great story? There was an E.F. E. Hutton, and as I understand it, um, he was either out west or in New York, but he had holdings out west. And I think the, the 1906 earthquake, he had heard, or maybe he was out west and he heard about it. He was, might have been in San Francisco, and communication was a little slower in those days. So apparently he you know, told his company back in New York, or he was in New York, and so somehow, whatever it was, he told everybody to sell everything out west, sell all your western assets, just get rid of all that stuff. Um, because they've just had an earthquake. And apparently he beat the news cycle, which is a little slower back then. You can't do this today. But uh, that was the saying. So when E.F. Hutton talks, you know, when he says that there's an earthquake in San Francisco in 1906, people listen. That's where that came from. It's one of those great San Francisco stories. Oh, that's very interesting. Very interesting. And, you know, it's a lot of things along those same lines Uh on how things get started. How well, things some, get started, people would never imagine. Well, in fact, if we have some that you want to talk about, it'd be kind of interesting um, to do that. And uh, like the, you've heard the the streets are paved with gold. You know where that one yeah. comes from? So where what happened? Do you know where that comes from? Because that, that's actually based on uh, on, on, a, on a true saying of, a, of something back in San Francisco history again. Well, you know the you know the, the streets. And uh, that led up to between two Egyptian temples, uh, the Temple of Luxor and the Temple of Ifet were paid in gold. Hmm, that's interesting. Yeah, I believe that. But the the way this came from was the Chinese in San Francisco. And, of course, the Chinese were were very poor, and a lot of them would do the railroad work, and a lot of them were killed because they're the ones that had to set the explosives. You know, they didn't send the white guys in. They sent the Chinese down. Uh, to actually set the charges, and of course, you know, dynamite was not as reliable in those days, and so it was it was quite uh, interesting. In fact, I've seen some of nitroglycerin. the nitroglycerin. It was nitroglycerin. Well, actually, they they went well. Nobel from the Nobel Prize. He's the one that that either 
invented um, TNT or, or converted it from nitroglycerin, or maybe he invented nitroglycerin or combined them. Whatever it was, he's responsible. The guy that gives the Nobel Peace Prize in his name, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. comes from the guy that invented dynamite. I just find that interesting. It's one of life's little little uh, little quirks of history. But they had, um, but the, yeah. what happened was, oh yeah. Anyway, so so back to San Francisco. So the Chinese, you know, were so poor that uh, they would do anything to, to, to earn a living and survive. And so what happened was back in the gold rush, when people had gold dust, I mean, they would take anything from those pans. You know, even, even tiny little flecks of gold was worth money. And so they would take it to the assayist office, you know, assay, A-S-S-A-Y, and they'd get uh, their equivalent in cash. And what happened was at the end of the day, they'd sweep out the store and they'd sweep it in the streets and the, uh, and the, 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 the boardwalks had cracks in them. And, but there was space underneath them. So the gold dust, you know, whatever minuscule amount of gold dust there was that got lost, dropped, sneezed, you know, who knows what, uh, would end up outside and end up in the street and, the, you know, in the, in the mud and the dirt. And, and folks would actually take gold uh, outside the offices of these places. And, uh, you know, they'd take their gold literally from the street. Hence, the streets were paved with gold. They used to call San Francisco oh, Gold Mountain. Okay. Yeah. So, that's, uh, so mm-hmm. there's a basis for that. Yeah. Yeah, it's been interesting. Um, I think I got Warren on the line now, so I don't know. Uh, I might give him a, a short minute here because he upset my guest yesterday. So we'll. Uh, so let me, let me just take him on for just a, a quick second here. But uh, Warren, why why did you call my guest naive and say you didn't know the Constitution? Is that the is that a basis for starting a conversation? Well, I mean, I, I mean, I was not allowed to finish my point. I, I well, of course not. You're insulting. I, 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 I find many people are very insecure in what they believe, and they go on an emotional outburst as a way to divert from any contending view that they may not be able to address or deal with. Wait, wait, wait. wait. Okay. So, so, uh, here's, let me, let me, so here's the basic problem. Whenever you talk to other people, it's always I'm right and you're wrong. It's like your beliefs are, are, are good and other people's beliefs are insecure. Your beliefs are correct and other pe- people's beliefs are wrong. Your information is factual, and other people are just using talking points. So you never argue from a basis of equality. You never talk to people as if, you know, you respect their point of view, you're listening to what they're saying, and that you're going to disagree constructively and in a civil fashion that doesn't involve an insult, a put-down, a condescending comment, a remark, a wrong belief or something that in some way, you know, degrades, denigrates, or insults the people that uh, I have on the show, including me. That's why you you didn't get on yesterday. That's why you couldn't continue yesterday. But you know, Greg, if a person is secure in what they believe in, then they should understand that when they face the public, you're going to have various types of scrutiny, and you may have people okay. that may approach you in a not so unpleasant way. So no, I no, just no, no, believe no. that a lot of this, a lot no, of this, no, no, no. outburst, okay, hold, hold on, Warren. divert. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. No, it's not a good way to argue. Pianki, one comment, then I'm going to let Warren go. Well, when I was a kid, I never. I was taught better than that is to – when I was a kid, I used to go to a lot of lectures, especially college lectures. My parents used to take me, my grandfather used to take me, and we would speak to a lot of people. And we never took that position that someone is insecure in what it was that they're speaking because I didn't know. It's just like when I tell to people about certain things, especially when it comes down to still erection, erection of bridges, mm-hmm. they never take the position with me myself. They listen as I did when I was coming up. 
Now, I, I've muted Warren now, and, and I wanted to just give him a chance to, to, to try and, and recover from what happened, but he went right back to, I'm secure and you're not. And so, uh, like I said, I don't want more you're welcome to call the show, but uh, I'm not going to, to tolerate that, that frame of reference whenever you talk to somebody, uh, certainly ever again. And so you're welcome to criticize. You're welcome to debate. You can get into to very enthusiastic debates, but what you can't do is assume that you're right and everybody else is wrong. And until that changes, you're going to have a very short time on this show. So let me uh, wish you a Merry Christmas. But you know, you asked a question. Go ahead. You asked a question of the interviewer that Uh I've uh, always made mention. That is, why do you need – why come the uh, U.S. Treasury can't perform the functions of uh, of the Federal Reserve? Yeah, so we're we're talking about the Mark Thornton interview uh, that I played just a few minutes ago. That's where – so, Pankis, I just want to make sure people are with us so they switch the topic. But, yeah. That is that is uh, you don't have the same question. Why why do we need to, mm-hmm. the answer is we don't. We just need the treasury. And it would save that interest. You wouldn't have mm-hmm. to uh, be paying that the interest, which is now hovering around four hundred billion, scheduled to be as much as the uh, defense budget, which is about seven hundred billion, mm-hmm. in about another two years. And this thing, what it would be around twenty thirty. Mm-hmm. Well, see, I thought it was higher, and, and I'm not sure how this works, but uh, doesn't the uh, the interest rate on the national debt rise as the interest rates rise? So when the Federal Reserve raises interest rates, are they not raising the interest rate on the national debt as well, or are they somehow found a way around that? I don't that? know if they do or not. I don't know if they have a set rate, a set percentage rate that they uh, basically stick to all the time because it would be kind of uh, conspiratory if uh, it was arranged like that, don't you think? Yeah, I do, but I'm thinking that what the interest rate probably is is the uh, the accumulation of what they have to pay for the bond. So in other words, when they 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 spend money that they don't have, so then they have to borrow money that they don't have to borrow. So they have to print money, and in in, in the printing of money, uh, and to raise the money to do this, they have to issue bonds, and this is what they, they're basing, I guess, the printing of the money on. Um, but the bonds that they issue to get money to spend that they don't have incurs a debt. Well, nobody buys a bond without an interest rate. So what I'm guessing is the interest that they pay on the national debt is the cumulative of all of the interests of the individual bonds that are currently out there. That would be my guess. Does that make sense? Yeah, and the way it works is uh, debt finance, so they create the debt first, then they Mm -hmm. go about selling the bonds. You know, so we want to build an aircraft carrier, $6 billion. Well, that's the debt that's created. Then they go mm-hmm. about selling the bonds to raise the money, and then they instruct the U.S. Treasury to print the money. Well, see, maybe they're independent, the, though. I, I'm thinking that they might actually be independent. Well, I'm thinking they might be independent because they can print money at will. See, that's the problem. They call it quantitative easing. So I think the borrowing is connected to the bonds. So they have to issue the bonds to get the money to borrow. But the printing of actual money is totally separate from that. And if they have inflation, they actually lower the price of their bonds and they lower their debt. So if, um, if you borrow, if the government borrows, this is a simple figure. So the borrow, government borrows a billion dollars. Well, that billion dollars is at a set value. And if you have inflation. That's the debt financing. Right. That's what I was trying to say, debt finance. But the question is, is who uh-huh. is the interest paid to? Who reaps from the interest? The bondholders. Because there's got to be some individuals in there someplace. Oh, there are. Yeah. So the $400 individuals. billion dollars is old. Yep. Uh-huh. 
individuals, corporations, foundations, foreign nations, foreign corporations, foreign foundations, foreign individuals. The debt is owned by all the people that's collectively owned by. But if the United States ever defaults on that debt, those bonds become worthless. People are going to cash them in, and, uh, and then we have real problems because then the government's going to have to make good on the bonds when they come, when they come back in. And that is why we have to pay our debt. That's why we can never default on the national debt because the bondholders will all say, oh, wait a minute, <laughs> you know, I want my bond. I'm cashing my bond out now. And the government doesn't have the money to pay them back. But as the bonds mature, those are the ones bonds. War bonds. Um, I think those are different. Those aren't different. Those aren't, those aren't part of the national debt. That's, that, I think that money actually goes directly to the Treasury. We fought World War II with, with savings bonds and things like that. They're a terrible investment, by the way. Absolutely horrible. If you want to support your country, right? I mean, you buy those because you want to. Yeah, you want to give the government money. You don't want to. uh, You're not looking for a return if you buy a savings bond. The only thing that's saving is the government. I have yet to find a. uh, I have yet to find a security symbol for the Federal Reserve. I search and search and search, so I never see it being treated. So I was just wondering. Still am. It's uh, that's, that's one question that perplexes me. Well, is who do. is this uh, federal reserve? Who is this interest uh, being paid to? Yeah, we need to do some work on that. Here's what I would do. You know, I'm, I'm making big star lines, you know, circles around things like that. So what we really need to do is transfer all federal fund, all federal reserve funds to the treasury, and that's about five trillion dollars worth of assets. How would that be? then you wouldn't even need a Federal Reserve. So take all the money out of the private hands and put it in the Treasury where Congress would have control over it and where it could be regulated. Do you like that idea? Nope. I don't want Congress to control any damn thing. <laughs> well, I mean, it doesn't mean they could st- – I mean, uh, what we want to control with Congress is borrowing. If they have revenue, you know, they're, they're supposed to spend revenue on the necessary expenditures of government, and that's a different argument. But the fact is that do you want the do you want all our money going to a private collection of bankers? I mean, Congress isn't the best place for it, but I think it's worse at the Federal Reserve. It's the worst place for those. I mean, I don't want bankers to have any interest in our money. I don't want them to have any power over our money. I don't want them setting monetary policy. So what we should do actually what we can do is incorporate that with just closing down the Fed. So you close down the Fed, you transfer them to the Treasury Department, uh, and uh, just kick them out. We don't need them. Well, you know what I really want? I just need to know what the rules are, me personally, and, of course, other people, too. Just tell us what the rules are, and uh, no matter what the conditions, no no matter what the uh, society is going through, uh, Mm -hmm. inflation, depression, whatever, just tell us the rules. Just stick to them. Yeah, I'm going to try and get um, Mark Thornton back. and so I just got to, I'm going to send him the two recordings from five years ago. He's still at Mises. I checked on that. Checked on him. Uh, he's still at Facebook. Um, but, uh, and Mises is still there. So, and they're at Auburn University. They're not that far from me. You know, so they're up in Alabama. Um, you know, I asked him about that. How long my first did interview. the interview go? You got that recording entirety? Uh, well, it was, it was, no, they were, there were two separate interviews. So mm-hmm. at WBY, I only got an hour. You know, I had to do two hours of, of commercial boring radio, news, weather, sports, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I only got to do one hour of action radio. So that's the nice thing about blog talk is I get to do three hours of action radio. I can do whatever I want here. For two separate interviews, one was July 
10th, I think, and the other one was August 28th or something of 2017. So about a month apart. But uh, they'll be available in podcasts. You just go to our, uh, our blog talk, uh, radio.com slash citizen action page, and just uh, there's a little search window at the top, and you can get both interviews, in, just get the podcast of both interviews. And once you start the show, you can use the show notes to go to the exact mark you know, of time where the interview begins, and you can listen directly to the interview. You, you don't have to listen to anything else you know, unless you want to. Uh, or just or all for all the things yeah. it goes for anything. Mm-hmm. I think I'm going to I'm going to do this. If I have a problem, I ask you. To, no, I'll send you the links. The gap but, the, the, mm-hmm. but the easy way to do it is to just go. And this is for everybody else who's listening too. Go to blogtalkradio.com/slash/citizenaction. Well, you know that because you went there to get our show in the first place. But up at the top in the center is a little search window, and just write Action Radio, comma Mark Thornton. T-H-O-R-N-T-O-N, Mark Thornton. Tanky, you can try it right now even. Just get a separate window, you know, and, um, you know, just Action Radio, comma, Mark Thornton, and both of his episodes, well, this, this one won't appear. The first part will be there uh, because I have, the, the podcast hasn't been made for this show, so it's not going to be out there yet. But you get the first episode, and the second one, will, the, the one that I played today, will be available uh, as soon as I close the show down and, and do the show. How you spell his last name? Thornton, T. H O R N T O N Thornton, and I'm not the only place. Mark, he speaks. Mark, so so he speaks a he, he speaks all the time. That's why he's so good at it. I mean, the guy's well practiced, you know, speaker. Anyway, yeah, check out his interviews because it, it, those were some of the those are two of the best interviews I did at WBY, and that's why I want to get him back. And because now I have a bill that proposes that uh, Congress. Um, you know, their power to borrow money be taken away. Lloyd, uh, Lloyd Brunson, did you hear him yesterday on that? He loved that idea. And he goes back to Jefferson and yeah, his book. So that, oh, that's right. Oh, well, yeah, that is yeah. a good idea. I'm yeah. for restraining, uh, mm-hmm. restraining the federal government as much as possible, yeah. especially with this idea of them uh, owning land. And, like, <clears throat> he talked about the, the effects that it has on oil. It's just totally ridiculous. It adds cost to it, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, just to well, if uh, the, the revenue, the type of revenue sharing that they have in Alaska. Now, mm-hmm. suppose that each the states that border the ocean, and if you would take an imaginary uh, left-right uh, border out into the ocean where it comes this side of uh, international waters where all exploration is going on, mm-hmm. where those royalties should come back to that state. Makes sense. You know, in fact, how far does the state boundary extend? So if the, if the federal boundary is out 200 miles for commercial purposes, then should not the state boundary, you know, directly go out um, 200 miles? Yeah, go out 200 miles. It should. It should in fact, it should go out uh, east or west, depending on your east or west coast, 200 miles to the exact distance that the federal one goes. Because mm-hmm. the state's being sovereign, they'd have to have the same territory. So the Constitution only grants, you know, uh, I, I think uh, on the federal government exclusive right at the actual border. And then, of course, the states have their own border, which is almost which is virtually the same place. But if you're going to make a 200-mile federal commercial limit, see, this is why the state of Maine should stop the uh, the Monterey Aquarium from banning their lobster fishing. Well, they can't. Well, they're not. They're, not, they're still being able to fish, but the Monterey Aquarium. Remember that story where the uh, um, Julie Packard, who is the daughter of uh, David Packard, that started Hewlett Packard, not the car, but the tech company. You know, she's a she's a trust fund baby, and she's a radical uh, leftist co environmentalist, and she stopped cla- the crab season, Dungeness crab, 
on the West Coast when I was still there. And I left in, in 2017. And she, she got that just by, you know, blacklisting and, uh, you know, and all these other, you know, corporate groups go along with her nonsense. And now, now she's trying to stop the main lobster. She wants to stop all fishing. She wants to stop fishing. She wants to stop seafood. She wants to stop everything. I guess the, the only food that she would allow if she were in charge would be farm-raised fish, which is horrible. In those horrible tanks they put them in, you know, with the artificial food and everything else yeah, like that. Yeah, they taste terrible. Yeah. They taste like well, mush. I won't eat them because it's not fish. You know, How does she uh, get that power? Well, because people give it to her. See, all she does is put, you know, Maine Lobster on this list, this alert list, this red list of hers, whatever it is. You know, she makes this banned list. And Monterey Aquarium, it's an aquarium. They've got fish in tanks. That's all this place is. I've been there. It's beautiful. It's a great aquarium. It's one of the best ones I've ever seen. But that's not the point. The point is they're radical environmental activists, and they force companies. And, of course, companies are, are getting all woke now themselves. So all these companies are doing this radical, insane stuff. They're going along with it. The restaurants aren't serving lobster because Julie Packard of the Monterey Aquarium doesn't want them to. Well, it's none of her damn business. Lobster tastes great. I love lobster. And you know what's ironic about this is that both New England and California have been extremely good about regulating uh, the lobster and the crab harvest uh, so that uh, it's what you would, the environmentalists call sustainable. They're still there you know, hundreds of years later. Mm-hmm. I mean, they've been fishing lobsters since, what, probably the 1600s, 1700s. Crab pots and lobster pots are very old technology. You put in the bait, you make a wooden frame, <laughs> you know, you tie it together, or you, I guess you steal cable now, and they have actually metal ones, but they used to be wood. And, uh, you know, lobster crawl in, and the crabs crawl in, they don't get out, and there's dinner. It's pretty basic stuff. But in San Francisco, I know that the Dungeness crab, the way they're harvested, they only harvest the males, because females can lay a million plus eggs. So you leave the females there to produce, you know, the next, you know, multiple generations and they harvest the males and they only do it a certain amount of time, certain part of the year, certain amount of catch. And that's it. You're done. Crab season. I think it's November to like January, maybe or something like that. And there yeah, you go. The season here crawdads too. Crawfish. Same thing. Yeah. So you, you leave them alone in the spring so they can make little crabs and then you harvest them next year. <laughs> You know, it's pretty simple stuff. But, but these wackos, you know, it's none of her business. Now, if, they were, if the lobster were endangered, that's different. But then the, the people in Maine, you know, they don't want to lose their industry. They don't want to lose their business, and they don't want to lose their lobster. Nobody, I think, intentionally uh, has a species coexisting. I think it was just done through ignorance. And we've lost species. You know, passenger pigeon, the dodo, the Carolina parakeet. What else have we lost? The ivory-billed woodpecker. You know, just, the birds come to mind. Um, the whales were almost extinct. Do you know what saved the whales? We talked about this the other day. What saved the whales was petroleum because they stopped using whale oil in lamps and, mm-hmm. you know, grease and fat and, you know, axle grease and things like that. So what saved the whales was petroleum. The environmentalists will never admit that. But it's kind of an interesting little, little twist of fate. What makes our, our crops grow is the Industrial Revolution putting carbon dioxide back in the air. It's the opposite of what they're telling you. Well, anyway. I wonder... With the mm-hmm. EV revolution, so what do we do? What would society do? Go back to harvesting whales for petroleum to grease <laughs> no, their gears and grease their bearings? I don't think so. Well, no, I don't think so. But I think what's going to happen is that we need to start characterizing, you know, electric gas vehicles or, or electric petroleum vehicles or electric fossil fuel vehicles because the only reason that they have electricity is because of, of what – used to be called fossil fuels that I call organic fuels. So if you convert, if you take energy to make electricity, 
and then you send out the electricity to power your car, you've actually made two power, you've made power twice. See, gasoline by itself or oil, I mean, petroleum, oil, coal, natural gas, petroleum products, right? They power power plants. So why would you have to run a power plant to convert power to electricity, you know, when you can have that power directly from the organic fuel? That doesn't make any sense, especially when carbon dioxide is so vital for the environment. So what they're calling a pollutant is actually a necessity. It's like saying the vaccines are safe and effective when they kill people. Everything's backwards. We're in the strange, you know, through the looking glass world. Anybody well, what you? the hell happens if we have a real good volcanic eruption and ash uh, goes up into the upper atmosphere and shields out the solar radiation? What's well, You know, if you uh, diminish the solar ra- radiation, it also mm-hmm. affects the wind because the ground is not heated up to call thermals, which mm-hmm. helps to create wind. So your wind generators stop, your solar panels stop, and where are we then? You know what else stops when the wind stops moving? Rain. Rain stops. Rain is created when warm air rises. When warm, moist air rises mm-hmm. and it cools, that's what causes rain. So if you block the sun and you block the solar energy to heat the earth, to warm the air, to have the warm humid air rise to a point where it cools, water condenses, and it comes back as rain, you don't get rain. You know, there are very few plants that can absorb water directly from the air. Some can. You know, in San Francisco, the redwoods, the, the reason that the coastal redwoods, there's two kinds of redwoods, sequoias in the middle of California and up the West Coast, and uh, coastal redwoods. The reason the coastal redwoods are so big and so much bigger and taller than the sequoias is because they can absorb the fog. They get the moisture directly on them. That's why they can get so tall because they reach hundreds of feet up into the fog and they get their water directly. See, California is a desert. People don't get that. That most of the water on the coastline of California comes off the ocean. So these trees and plants are breathing it directly by the fog that condenses right on the leaves. And the yeah, environmentalists don't talk about this. They grow tall because they're seeking that moisture. It's just like mm-hmm. in a forest. You know, there's a forest there in, uh, in West Africa. Between Togo and Ghana, it's nothing but um, rubber trees. But as you go deeper and deeper, the canopy at the top is so thick that sunlight can hardly penetrate through, and it's down there in the night all the time in there. Yeah, yeah, that's why the deep dark forest that's where that 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 came from because the trees are so thick. So the trees, in order to survive, the species that survives best in the environment is the one that grows the tallest. The one that grows the tallest is a competition. Mm-hmm. Yep. And that's why you have like the strangler plants, like strangler figs that go on the, on the backs of their parasites that go on other trees and they, grow, they, they use the tree as the basis for their growth. Then the inside tree dies out, you know, but the, the fig is left. It, it's uh, it's a pretty nasty. Nature competes. I mean, plants kill each other all the time. There, there's, there's a war of plants that you don't nature see because it happens too very, slowly. Uh, Nature is very treasured, but you know, that's how man are. <clears throat> Human beings, humans learn from nature. Mm-hmm. How else could they? Well, see, that's no, question. Uh, yeah. well, see, that's the question I have for Wendy and, and a couple of other folks I know, is that, uh, you know, if the world, you know, I believe the world is intelligently designed. I believe, you know, God created it. But I also question a few things, like why we have mosquitoes, as Dennis Prager says, you know, why the avocado pits are too big, like George Burns said in the movie, Oh God, and why God designed a planet where everything kills everything else to survive. That 
is an interesting, if you were going to create a world, is that the world that you would create? I don't know. What if the old context of the survival of the fittest? What if the mm-hmm. competition? It right. even exists within your body. Yeah. And, and ultimately, your body loses, <laughs> you know, eventually. Um, but, yeah, you've got all these wonderful microbes and uh, bacteria and things like that. I was just reading this morning on a post uh, about garlic that I put in the air uh, to our, our life and health coaching page, that garlic and cayenne pepper and honey are as good as penicillin, a whole lot cheaper, and they don't destroy all the bacteria in your system, whereas penicillin does. Artificial antibiotics destroy your immune system. They destroy the things that they're trying to help. I mean, they destroy the, ba- the bad stuff too, but they destroy the good stuff along with it. So instead of penicillin, take garlic. I happen to like garlic, so you know I've got a pretty good immune system. You know, I'll just throw those raw garlic cloves right in. You herd immunity. Mm-hmm. If you ever have a fist in your body or an entry point for bacteria, mm-hmm. your immune system, the cells, will hurt that bacteria in one location mm-hmm. until it finally pops. And releases all the dead bacteria, and that's where you get that pulse and it smells. Hmm. And uh, that was herd immunity. Hmm. Yeah, herd immunity used to be what we would do naturally, you know, calling it the end of the flu season. That's herd immunity. Because mm-hmm. the new virus that came yeah, through, we herd immunity to. too. Yeah, so herd immunity mm-hmm. occurs every year. But the, but the thing is that the World Health Organization, the Great Reset, and all these other people, they came along. And said that uh, there, you know, that herd immunity means you're, you're vaccinated. Well, as we know, vaccines destroy immune systems, and of course, the current one is killing people. You know, I was reading a, a Steve Kirsch newsletter. Five times more people, you know, died of the jab than died of COVID. I'm surprised it's that low. It's probably a lot. I think I believe it's a lot higher than that. Yeah. But uh, that's the, the vaccination fools the body mm-hmm. because the body is uh, when it's see this vaccine, it will stop producing. It's shut yeah. down. It's cut the factory and lay everybody off. <laughs> it's funny how this stuff works, isn't it, Greg? It is fascinating. It is fascinating. You know, I just uh, I was checking my uh, my live chat here for a second because actually earlier I did ask Warren to call if he wanted to call in, uh, and then I changed my mind. <laughs> I said, wait a minute, you know, because it went to the same stuff again. Let me, let me try and bring him back here. He's still on hold. Let me see if we can get one. Uh, let's see if you can let's see if you can redeem yourself and and tell me that uh, you're going to argue from a point of equality and discuss things from a point of equality and not supremacy. So Warren, you're back on the air. Yes, I'm here. Can you do that? Can you argue from a place of equality rather than supremacy? Well, I argue from my position, from my viewpoint. Well, that's okay. I don't mind you arguing from your viewpoint. I just don't want you casting aspersions as part of that viewpoint. So kind of like establishing a new rule here. Well, I mean, good? you know, when you look at your guest, he, he went off, and he he had no reason to go off to blow a gasket. Yeah, see, there you go again. All right, let me put you back on hold. Um, it's always somebody else's fault. <laughs> yeah, that's that's arguing from supremacy. So I'll... Uh, you know, like I say, Warren's welcome to call, but uh, you know, I want to I want to break this this supremacy argument position. You know, argue as an equal. You know, yeah. But Lloyd did get mad yesterday. It was really pretty funny, actually. Uh, a lot of people, people never take that, into too. consideration of cause and effect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nobody wants to nobody wants to talk to somebody that's insulted them. Anyway, we, I think I might do a show tomorrow. I was thinking of canceling, but I've got so much. I, I got to one article and I have like 
12. <laughs> but uh, one thing I noticed last night, there's a, there's a growing rift to watch. First of all, I don't think that $1.7 trillion bill has been voted on yet. They're probably going to wait till Friday night when everybody's dead, tired, and asleep, and uh, you know, they want to go home. I'm hoping it doesn't pass. How do you have time to read 4,000 pages? Well, nobody does. This hasn't been worked on for a long time, too. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, somebody's reading it. Well, the lobbyists are doing it. It's all pork. It's an entire pork bill. So it should be voted down for that. It shouldn't have ever been introduced. You know, we need to reform the budget process. One way is to go back to appropriations bills, which is what they're supposed to do. I know that's not in the Constitution, but that's always been a House rule, that they have 12 appropriations bills. They take all year to write them. They bring in the agencies and departments, and they go through hearings, and then they decide on how much to recommend of that appropriation to the full House and then the Senate because revenue bills start in the House. Uh, Entities that derive this money from pork should have to pay 80% taxes. (laughs) But I'd rather not spend the money in the first place. Now, Now consider this. If Congress had no power to borrow money, this bill wouldn't be an issue because they couldn't do it without borrowed money. You know, if without borrowing money, you know, all these problems go away. And Jefferson was right. I got to do more research on what Jefferson said because it really is the uh, uh, that really is what it's all about. He said if you stop Congress from borrowing money, you have no money problems uh, as far as inflation. You have uh, you know you don't need a Fed. Of course, you don't need a Fed anyway. Um, but so the the money retains its value. There is no transfer to the banks. There is no advantages. There's no there's all kinds of things that can't be done uh, simply because Congress isn't borrowing money. So that you don't need credit. You know, and you don't have the inflation that makes Consumers borrow money, which costs them interest, which makes yeah, eight percent inflation makes uh, means that you mm-hmm. got to pay eight cents more per dollar. Yeah, that's, that's a tax. You only pay a dollar for. It's an eight percent tax. You know, on top of the regular taxes, on everything, and that's before you spend the money because your money is actually losing eight percent value. So that's an automatic tax. There are no deductions. There are no credits. There are there is no way around it, because the only way around it is to spend your money now. Because tomorrow it's not going to be worth as much. And so there's no savings. The discouraged savings. Yeah. Exactly. said that. Yeah, yeah. Well, let me change things a little bit. What do you think of uh, my congressman here, Matt Gates, who has who was on uh, Dan Ball last night, One American News? I'm sure he's making the rounds. But he is absolutely dead set against um, Kevin McDeepstate, you know, becoming the Speaker of the House. And more power to I'm going to call his officer, write his officer, probably do both, you know, after the show. I want to see if I can get him back on, maybe between Christmas and New Year's. But this is absolutely critical. And even staunch conservatives like Marjorie Taylor Greene, I say, no, we have to unite behind, you know, Kevin McDeepstate. Kevin McCarthy is who I'm talking about. I call him Kevin McDeepstate, which is hard to say. <laughs> but that's who he is. He is McDeepstate. And so uh, I don't want him there, you know, and as uh, – Gates said yesterday, I've seen this movie before. He's only against things, you know, for, to get his office. He wants to be speaker, probably with the, the delusion if uh, Brandon and Kamala Harris are, are uh, removed from their office for committing a coup, that he'd become president by default. Wouldn't that be interesting? But um, I'm curious. Why, you know, of all the times for the conservatives to unite behind a deep state operative is the wrong place to do it. Pianke, have you been following this at all? Well, I've been following it off and on. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you made a point there is that uh, these parties will not seemingly do the right thing for the right purpose. 
And that's why I come out say that uh, it's going to have to be some amendments of the main rule, that's the Constitution, in order to hold them in check. And, of course, like you make mention, too, with Bill, but uh, they're not going to do it on their own, Greg. The uh, incentives with the lobbyists and the advocates, see, is just mm-hmm. too great. Oh, I know that. And, I and, and that's that's right that. here at Action Radio. See, now we just – yeah. We we just talked about it at the level of the federal government, but mm-hmm. the control should be with the states controlling those elected Congress people and senators. If each state was to do that, well, then when they got there, they wouldn't be working on such issues and be working at more pertinent things as uh, the constituency uh, demands. Yeah, we need to look into recall, state recall procedures. I'm not sure if it's individual or how it works. It would have to be individual states. Each state is different. Yeah, state I was looking at that here of, last week. It had, yeah. Each state Congress. is different. You have it at the judicial. You have it at the, the, uh, at, the at, at the Congress level. Then you also have it at state level. So some mm-hmm. states like Oregon. And mm-hmm. many more, really. Even California, you can recall at all three levels. But that don't take into account for all the other corruption that's going on as far as voting is concerned. That's a different issue. But the states need to take charge of their voting, and they need to stop recognizing. See, this is why the states should have put forward the Trump electors. The battleground states, Arizona, New Mexico, Nevada, Michigan, Wisconsin, um, uh, Georgia, and Pennsylvania – those states that had Republican legislators, because Democrat legislatures are not going to do it, and certainly not the Democrat secretaries of state or governors, but where they have Republican legislators, those Republican legislators should demand uh, um, that to the Trump electors that they voted for be put forward, because those are the ones they elected. If I, as the Constitution says you don't even have to win the popular vote. The legislature can elect whoever they want in terms of electors. They can say, you know, the popular vote, they, they just voted for a dictator. They voted for a coup. We can't allow that. We can't allow Brandon to get the White House. He's not legal. And they can say, we're going we're gonna to put Trump electors up. And they should have declined um, the, the, Democrat, the, the Brandon electors and just put the Trump, for, Trump electors forward and said, these are the only ones. These are the ones you're going to get. Well, he didn't win your state. Yes, he did. These are the ones you're going to get. And the states didn't do that because they're geldings. You know, that's our final you're absolutely problem. We're right. Still, we're still kind of the same problem. You know, same thing with all the mandates. The only state that didn't have any kind of a mandate, and Florida did, we had a mandates initially. Um, fortunately, um, Ron DeSantis saw the error in his ways and got rid of the mandates. But the only state that never had randate, mandates was South Dakota under Christy Noem. The only state. She never mandated anything. She never did any of those bogus, unconstitutional COVID mandates. You know, and that's well, just one had, state. Well, she had the state legislature that was behind her, too. Yeah, I'm sure they were. You think? Well, who wish, well the, they didn't vote for a mandate. I mean, South Dakota didn't vote for one. I'm right. pretty sure of that, uh, you know, because then the governor would ha- could have vetoed it. But um, oh, yeah, the but, governor uh, has the power to veto, but the, the legislature's mm-hmm. got a, the power of directing. Mm-hmm. And if she had the state legislature behind her, then it went smooth the way, you know, the way we thought. Yeah, let's see if I can get her on the show again. I tried before. I was in contact with uh, the South Dakota, um, you know, her office. But uh, we never quite, uh, you know, minions. Minions are, are, are my uh, um, are the bane of my existence. The people that don't recognize what we do here. 
And so, Governor of South Dakota. You know, education plays a big part in the problems mm-hmm. that we have today. You got a lot of people. Of yeah. course, you got a public that's miseducated. There's been mm-hmm. many instances and examples of that. And then you got people that come out of the, you got Congress, well, you got elected officials who comes out of the populace, and they're coming out of a source of ignorance. And mm-hmm. when they get to the position that they are, uh, they're ignorant. That's why they like to stay there for decades in order to go through a learning process and learn how the how the niche works, and that's detrimental. It's time is the growth for the nation and also uh, the building of families and to um, make themselves sustainable in the society, the way things are now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of things that we can change. Well, let me see what happens with with Lloyd Brunson if he you know, puts us on his website and he's sending things to every house in the, in the nation. And people start hearing that, uh, that action radio and, and the, and the Brunson's they're, they're taking the judiciary. We're working on the legislative angle. And all of a sudden we get to be huge national news and our issues get before the, the people and the pollsters and the media and the Congress and the state legislatures and the governors and the local governments and the school boards, the County commissions and the city councils. We're going to change everything. I mean, this is a fundamental change in politics, how politics is done, how laws are made. You know, laws are drawn from the people that are already consented to. So, so the things that we submit, and there are going to be other groups that are, going to, that are going to start their laws too. I fully expect Marxist groups to write Marxist laws, but they don't have to because the government's already doing that. So the only people, so this is why our laws are so important because the opposition's already there. You know, they're already writing the Marxist laws. They're already doing the Marxist dictates. There's my, there's my warning. <laughs> I just got the... Uh, um, the, the, the minute and a half warning. So let's sum up here. I'm going to see okay. if it'll run over, um, but I want to play a couple of things and, and just see if it, uh, see if I can go into, um, into the overtime period and see if that's going to work um, because I'm on the microphone now. The last time they cut me off right at three hours, I was calling in by phone. So maybe that's, maybe that's different. I don't know. But I'll find out in about in exactly 60 seconds. So I'm going to do a show tomorrow. Uh, so you're welcome to join me in I have a ton of articles I never got to, but that's how it works here. So anyway, see you tomorrow or not. Uh, have a Merry Christmas, and I'll, I'll talk to you after Christmas on Monday. Well, I'll see you tomorrow. Derek going to be in tomorrow? No, Derek's not in, and Shirley, I don't think. I'm, I'm, still, I'm still talking to her about that. We'll find out. Derek's definitely not here. But uh, some folks will be. It wouldn't Me? be a Friday without Shirley. Well, I'll, talk I'll talk to you later. Well, I'll see if I can get her to do it. All right. Take care, Pianchi. Bye, Warren. Merry Christmas. This is Greg Penglis. So what is Action Radio? It is a radio show with its own citizen legislature. That's you, the listener. It is a fully interactive system of listeners, expert guests, social media, writing bills, legislator input, bill submission, lobbying, and citizen action. Action Radio is the future of talk radio using all the available technology in one completely integrated new system. You are listening to Action Radio Online with Greg Penglis. The webpage for all Action Radio shows and podcasts is blogtalkradio.com slash citizenaction. Please share our show with all your friends and family, both nationally and internationally. The guiding principle of Action Radio is this. We the people give our consent to be governed through writing the laws by which we are governed. 
Okay, so this is where I'm going to find out if I'm still in the air uh, after the three-hour time period because the three-hour clock has expired, but I think I'm still broadcasting. <laughs> so it's only uh, all it takes is a little bit here. So if we extend beyond the three hours, even if we get a minute in here, uh, then I'll know I can still do it um, being on the air here now. But I've said everything I want to say. So I'll be back tomorrow morning at uh, 6 o'clock if Shirley's here, maybe 7 o'clock if she's not. And uh, we'll have a little gun chat. And Derek's off for Christmas. Everybody's going to be off. And next week, I'll probably do shows. You know, the minute I get away from it, I want to get back on the air. You know, but right at the end of the show, I'm thinking, oh, yeah, I could take a break. It's time for lunch because <laughs> I get up early. Uh, so have a you know, Merry Christmas if, I, if you're not listening uh, tomorrow. But you can always catch the podcast, and I'll be back Monday. Next week might be a very interesting time because there isn't a lot of other news. We might do a lot of action radio, internal things, writing, uh, a bunch of things like that. But we'll see how it goes. Anyway, for now, I'm out of here. And I'll be back tomorrow at either 7 a.m. Central or 6 a.m. Central uh, if we have Shirley. And until then, uh, have fun at Christmas and talk to you later. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over by law, 18 plus, terms and conditions apply. See website for details.